That's right, everyone. Welcome back to 80s High, the podcast that revisits those radical gems from the 80s, from television and games to culture and movies. And even for today, a very special filmmaker. I'm one of your hosts, Chris. And I'm the other host, Ben. And this is 80s High. Welcome, everybody. Ben, good to see you again. Welcome back. Good to see you too, and happy All Hallows Eve, the night yes. before Halloween. The spirits are out in the cemetery. the night before Halloween, right. and all through the house, not a spirit was stirring. Not even the ghost of a mouse. Look, you're a lover, as you mentioned on the last episode, of spooky movies. Have you have you been getting into the mood with some spooky movies for Halloween? Oh, you know, I have. The marathon has continued and watching a bunch of stuff. But to keep it just here segmented to the 80s, I just, before we recorded, finished watching, rewatching Poltergeist. Ooh, classic. Ugh. Classic. And of course, you know, related to today's episode because Stephen King was a producer and I think he has a writing credit for it as well. But uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Just great to see some of those classic scenes, like with the clown and the creepy yeah. tree and the, the little lady and the don't go to the light, go to the light. And then at the end, Craig T. Nelson is like grabbing the guy, like the developer of the neighborhood. And he's like, you only move the headstones. You only move the headstones. Why? And it's just like, oh, my God, it was so good. What was what was the classic line? This house is clean. This house is clean. <laughs> so, yeah. So uh, good. The child sees the presence as a fellow child, <laughs> but we know it as the beast. Oh, it's so good. That's awesome. That's awesome. Oh, man. So what about you? Anything exciting 80s-wise going on? Well, you know what? I found something that relates to the show overall. You know, I okay. was spending my day flipping through the Journal of Experimental Social Psychology. You know, as you do. Like you do. As you do yeah, on a weekend. You know. Little Friday night read. And I saw a nice little thing that related to one of the reasons we kicked off 80s High to begin with. Uh, this recent study, authored by Nicholas Kelly, uh, concluded that the more nostalgic one is, the more authentic one feels, which has hmm. a positive effect on psychological well being. So this is kind of cool. This okay. was like a multi country study. They had subjects in the US and China and the United Kingdom. So they were basically saying, like, when you engage in some sort of nostalgic act, whatever that might be, it results in this feeling of authenticity, which mm. is sort of like this self-actualization. Like, you just feel more real and grounded. And it had positive effects on basically everything they measured for psychological well-being, social relationships, vitality, competence, meaning of life, optimism, and subjective well-being. Wow. Which is one of the many reasons why that. we started 80s High. The nostalgia can be a nice little a nice little drip to keep you up. Yeah. We we've got a new psychologist in our midst. We had Dr. Neil. Remember our uh, <laughs> oh, Dr. Neil. our poet, our science poet, the Dr. Science Neil poet. Burton. And now we have a uh, 
another person in our corner that needs to come on and just talk about the science, the brain science, the psychology yes. of nostalgia. That's super cool. I love it. This is Doc Kelly. So I, uh, you know, I, in reflecting on my uh, nostalgic activities of October, uh, I, I did the adult scaled Lego sets of the 1989 Batmobile and Ecto-1 from Ghostbusters Afterlife. Wait, did you finish the Batmobile already? My goal was to finish both by the end of October. And they are, inc- oh, yeah. <laughs> they are incredible sets. My friend, you've got almost about, what, 26 hours? You don't have a lot of time left. Oh, no, I know. After we I finished. Record? Unfortunately, both sets were missing oh, one you piece. Did. Okay. So you got to, like, order away for him and get the piece to come and fix it. But, like, you know, I feel it felt authentic. I felt uh, <laughs> full of vitality. When you actualized? I even felt the meaning of life, I think, by the end of them. I think I figured it out. Wow. It was a lot of fun. Both amazing 1980s vehicles. That is amazing. I love it. It was a blast. Absolutely love it. But you know, although I've gotten to experience this, I think there's someone who could teach a master class on social relationships, optimism, and the meaning of life. Perhaps the subject of today's episode, you might say? Perhaps. Well, listen, Homeroom is about done. We've been rambling and ambling long enough. So let's get to history class to learn the origin story of Steven Spielberg from his youthful education to his blossoming career as a filmmaker. I'll see you down the hall, Ben. I love it. I'm going to go down there at 88 miles per hour. I'll see you there. Okay, I'm really excited. Today we're talking about the legendary, the one, the only, the inimitable Mr. Steven Spielberg. So if you just crawled out of the primordial ooze, if you just overturned a rock and saw daylight for the first time, who is this guy? Steven Allen Spielberg. He's an American film director, producer, and screenwriter. He's a major figure in the Hollywood era and pioneer of the modern blockbuster. He is the most commercially successful director of all time. That's amazing. That's amazing. So what does that mean? Well, let's look at some numbers. Well, he has directed 32 movies. And I tried to get a count, but I found this online. So this is probably close, if not dead on. He's been involved in at least 148 movies. Oh, my God. And that could be director, writer, producer, executive producer, or some mix thereof. So my goodness, what an imprint he's had. And you're going to know a lot of these movies that we're talking about. Um, (laughs) Yeah. He tops various charts as the most influential, the most powerful person, the greatest director. Seven of his films have been inducted into the National Film Registry for being culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. And he's won three Academy Awards. He's received eight nominations for Best Director and won twice. I'm not going to lie. I feel like that's light for Academy Awards. Like for what he's done, I feel like there should be a billion. You know what? That's a great point. Like for 32 movies that he's directly involved in. Yeah. yeah. I don't think there's a best executive producer credit. You know, at the... <laughs> <laughs> not, not yet. They're working on that one. There's no Oscar not for yet. that. but. <laughs> So I I think it's safe to say, in summary, Spielberg is one of the most influential, legendary film directors in history. So just a little note at the top, we're going to not be able to cover his entire catalog. Like we said, 148 movies. We can't squeeze that into hopefully an hour and a half, hour 45. So 
we might miss your favorite. We might miss a gem that you're like punching your steering wheel. Why didn't you guys say that? Just know we're, we're trying to hit some of those highlights and the, the high watermarks of his career, those turning points, milestones. And with those things, if we did miss it, this is not a one-way conversation. We are not, we are not cultural protectors of the 80s or of Steven Spielberg. Find us on Instagram. Hit us up at 80shighpodcast at gmail.com. Tell us what you loved about Steven Spielberg, what we missed, and we absolutely want to make this a dialogue, and we'll get to it on our next episode. Very true. Yeah, we love hearing from our fans. I will say also, I saw the documentary on HBO Max, Spielberg. It is amazing. If you have HBO Max and you want to learn more about his life and his movies, it's a very, very well done. Anyone involved with Steven Spielberg in any way is in this freaking documentary. Pretty much all of his family, every known director, name any main actor in a movie, they at least have one interview quote or pull in this entire thing. It is amazing. Is that the end of our episode? We're just directing people to go watch the HBO documentary and then you just get all the Spielberg you need? Actually, just turn it off right now. Go watch Spielberg. This has been 80's eye. So... Okay. So, that, awesome. all the disclaimers aside, let's talk about how Steven Spielberg became Steven Spielberg. And it starts with him being born, which, frankly, he can't take any credit for. There's going to be a lot of stuff he can't take credit for. <laughs> he, frankly, had nothing to do with this. So... <laughs> No, he's born in 1946 in Cincinnati, Ohio. He's a fellow Ohioan. Here's the thing. Right what? out of the bat, I needed to talk about this. So I, most of my youth was growing up in Cincinnati, and I spent several years working at a museum in Cincinnati. Right. No one makes a deal about him being from Cincinnati. Like, I never heard any... Why do we not have Spielberg Way, like a road downtown? Right. Why is there not Why is there not the annual Steven Spielberg Day in Cincinnati? You hear nothing about this in Cincinnati. I mean, maybe he was born in a hospital and they immediately drove out of the state. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, we're going we're gonna to learn here. they did move a lot. So... Yeah, right. Uh, and maybe so that's why, you know, he's kind of associated with some of the places where he, he came up and, you know, started... To become a young filmmaker. So we're still in Cincinnati, though, and he's born to parents Leah and Arnold. Leah is a restaurateur and concert pianist. Arnold is an electrical engineer working in the, what I'll call, still nascent field of computers. This is computers oh, in 1946. Wow. That's amazing. You know, they talk about how he was basically a computer genius. He was well sought after, so their family moved a lot. So they weren't in Ohio long. They're in New Jersey. They're in Arizona. Eventually, we're going to see them in California. So they really kind of go coast to coast. Maybe it's sort of the issue with like Abraham Lincoln. Like wherever Lincoln was, like every little town his family moved around, like he was in like 19 different towns growing up. Maybe that's the Spielberg thing. They're like, he was only here for six days. We're not going to make a big deal about it. Maybe that's the issue. I I can't say most towns have a claim to fame, so I'd put up a statue myself, but whatevs, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Whatevs, come on, why not? (laughs) Uh, Stephen has three younger sisters, Anne, Sue, and Nancy. And they said, like, growing up, their mom, they called, they, they said she was like Peter Pan. She was more of a best friend than a mother. And she would Ooh. often get into trouble along with the kids, which is so funny. And uh, his sister Sue had said that they were almost like bohemians growing up in suburbia. And they tell this hilarious story in the documentary because uh, his parents, at least at the time of the documentary, were still alive. And they were talking about how Leah brought a monkey home one time. Like she just, (laughs) she just found a, like she was able to get a hold of a monkey and bring it to their house. So she just seemed like a, a fun kind of 
free-spirited person and uh, almost more like a, a cool big sister than a mom, but I just love that so much. I don't want to like do a deep dive psych here. I know I started the episode off with the psych study, but when I look over his list of movies, there are a lot of movies where the mom is like closely bonded with the kids. Mm. And not only, not always an, as an authority figure when I'm just looking over his yeah. list right now. No, you're right. There's a lot where the mom is like kind of in the hijinks with the kids in the movie too. Interesting. This is a great point. Yeah. And and we're going to, we're going to see something else about father figures as well. in a lot of his movies and that'll yeah, become clear right. as we talk. So uh, he grew up Orthodox Jewish and uh, was basically the only Jewish kid in his neighborhood. And he said that made him feel like an outsider. And he was bullied and teased for being Jewish. Um, oh, and really made him not want to be Jewish and really shun that part of his life and his identity, which, you know, he later came to regret and feel ashamed of. But I mean, I get it. When you're a kid and you're growing up, you just want to fit in. And if you're being mm-hmm. mocked, and teased for something you have no control over, like that's hard. So you can't blame a guy for doing that, for wanting to be like, I, I just want to fit in. And, you know, he was characterized as a watchful and attentive kid, but he said like a lot of his demons were self-inflicted wounds. It's how he saw himself. He didn't have a high self-esteem and he was kind of a lonely guy. As somebody who was kind of teased growing up, like I get it. I totally get that aspect of his of his childhood and how that affected him in adulthood, too. You know what's interesting here about Stephen, though? You know, if you're getting picked on, you know, if you don't like the story others are writing for you, you start writing your own story. You, you start controlling the narrative. And maybe that's part of it. Maybe that helped. That is absolutely true. Filmmaking allowed him to have some control. And a lot of his movies, you will see people who are out of control and vulnerable. Yeah. And <laughs> that theme kind of carries through. And it did come from that fact that as... When he made films, he was in control and he could bring people in to his circle and create an experience with them. It gave him a vehicle to do that. So absolutely, that is a fundamental aspect of uh, his career and his personality. In fact, he said as a kid, everything scared him. And he said there's a tree outside his window that was terrifying, which was, I think, an inspiration for that nightmare tree outside the kid's window in Poltergeist. Oh, yeah. Which, again, I just watched. Um, But he said he played out his fears on his sisters. He would blindfold them, put them in a closet with, like, a skull, and block them in there, relishing at their screams. (laughs) Steven! And the best part is, in the doc, he's like, you know, looking back on it, that was a lot of fun. Like... (laughs) 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 there's no remorse there's no regret and then one of his sisters was like he used to scare us and now he gets to scare the crap out of everyone else this is very funny oh my god steven break the cycle you know if you're being bullied don't bully more you you gotta break the you gotta be the stop break the chain well maybe his manipulations come in a different way through the screen through the camera okay i feel better about that yeah because at age 12 he picks up his dad's camera and he makes his first home movie and what he does is he stages a train wreck with his little toy trains. And did you hear this? So I guess Steven used to complain about the home movies his dad was shooting of the family that he said, like, Dad, what you shoot of our holidays is really boring. Isn't that hilarious? So I would like to be in charge. So you took over at the, like, right there, right, I guess, age 10, took over filming family holidays and movies. That sensibility was, like, innate in him. It just really yeah. came out of his personality and then his, you know, coming up as a, as a youngster. But yeah, he, it was in him from the beginning. Well, a year later at age 13, he makes a 40 minute war film 
titled Escape to Nowhere. And he casts right. his schoolmates. It actually features the score, Ride of the Valkyries. Dun, da, 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 dun, dun, da, 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 yeah. da. And, <laughs> and he has these like fast-paced like action scenes. Kids are shooting at each other. They're, it's changing angles. Cameras are down low. They're up high. They're close up. They're far away. Kids are firing guns and falling over. And what's wild is they're like all these primitive effects, we just kind of made up. And one of them that they did is they put these boards on the ground because I guess they wanted – Stephen wanted to get like actual explosives and blow them up. And his dad was like, yes. yeah, no way. No way. So so good. They put these boards on the ground and like dirt on them. So when the kid's running and they step on it, it shoots the dirt up in the air and it looks like a bullet hit and like – you know, shit. What do they, what do they call the those dirt. in cinema now? This is a squib? It's like a little squib going off, the tiny Basically, little cap yeah. that explodes. It's kind of like a squib, yeah. When I was reading about this movie, I thought of you in some past episodes we've talked about, where like when you were doing creative play as a kid in the 80s, whatever found objects around the house were critical to like make your forts or whatever was going to be the base for the G.I. Joe's Ninja Turtles crossover. And so his mom drove an old World War II Jeep. Like, that was her normal car, and he was like, brilliant, I can have this in my war movie, and it'll really sell the authenticity, and Absolutely, it yeah. Being inspired by the found props around the house, it's awesome. It's amazing, like, all of this access they had to, like, cool stuff, and he made a 40-minute movie. That's- That's awesome. That's impressive. That's so impressive. At age 13. Well, he's not only making movies, he's also taking in movies, and he said some of his- Early influences at the movie theater were movies like Godzilla, King of the Monsters, yeah, any Kurosawa film. But the one that had the biggest effect on him was Lawrence of Arabia in 1962. Oh, sure. yeah. And he said, this is the movie that set me on my journey. It convinced him that that was what he wanted to do. And this is a quote he said, which is great. So David Lean, the director, he said, created a portraiture, surrounded the portrait with a mural of scope an epic action, but at the core of the movie was the question, who am I? Even at that young of an age, he kind of got it. He's like, yeah, you can have action. You can have all of these beautiful shots, but there's a a human nugget at the middle of it. And ultimately what that nugget is, for this movie at least, is who am I? And again, that's a sensibility that he just kind of had or developed. It's genius. And you'll see that throughout all of his movies, that it's all got to be very character centric. It's all about the people and what, like the common people and what they're going through. Absolutely. In 1963, he writes and directs his first independent film, Firelight, which would later go on to inspire Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And it was fun seeing some clips from Firelight that he basically like redid shots as a professional once he could. Yeah. In Close Encounters from Firelight. Yeah. It's awesome. So there's this apocryphal tale, which I don't know what is true of this. And I don't know if you found anything. So oh I'd like, boy. I'd oh, like to go. know. So he says that he took a tour of Universal Studios. And sometime during the tour, like the little tram stops and they get off for a restroom break. And he said he hid in the restroom until everybody got back on the tram and it left. And he's like, and I came out once it was dead silent. And I just started walking around the studio. I wish this story was true. I have no. I don't know if it is or not, but I hope it is. I love it already. And here's the lore. <laughs> this is the funny part. They said that he took up an office there. He printed his name on the door, and he worked there for six months. It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> ridiculous. And apparently, when he was there, he snuck onto a Hitchcock set until he was found and kicked out. Oh, interesting. 
I also read that he worked as an unpaid assistant in the editorial department. So I don't know what the real story is, <laughs> but I found this hilarious quote, which is, when the legend is bigger than the facts, print the legend. I thought that was great. Ooh, that's a good quote. I like that. The fact of the matter is he's at Universal Studios at some point. Either <laughs> he's urbanly explored on there he's and is now just sort of yeah. <laughs> just roaming around, or he is indeed this unpaid assistant in a more professional capacity. But it's around this time that his parents are divorced. This really begins a longstanding falling out he has with his father that persists for 15 years. Oof. So he has an estrangement from his father, which he admits was his own doing. His father wanted to have contact, but Stephen kind of shut him out because he felt like he abandoned the family. And to jump ahead, what they hid from the kids is that Leah initiated the divorce. Really? But Arnold said that he wanted to protect her. And so he kind of took the blame and suffered in silence, which I think is very much of that generation. Yeah, absolutely. Thankfully, just to jump ahead, they do later reconcile. But, you know, 15 years to be estranged. Yeah, that's hard. That's a long time. Being a child of divorce and having this kind of absent father, again, even if it's of his own volition, definitely makes its way into a lot of his particularly earlier movies, uh, especially like Close Encounters and E.T. At this time, they're living in California. He applies to USC, University of Southern California Film School. And of course, he gets in and is successful, right, Ben? Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's... Everyone knows the Spielberg name. He's in No Problem. Yeah, they're like, wait a minute. You're Steven Spielberg. You did Escape to Nowhere. You did Firelight. No, he's rejected. Like a lot of these people who go on to be successful, they're rejected because his grades weren't great. So he later uh, does get into California State University in Long Beach. But he says that Universal Studios really was his film school. And that makes sense. He's there where like real movies are being made. He's not in a classroom talking about it in an academic sense or, you know, anything of that nature. And sure, in film school, you got hands-on experience, but you're not learning. You're not on the set with Alfred Hitchcock for crying out loud. Come on. And I thought that was surprising and interesting also. I feel like, you know, I was getting ready for like a Bill Gates kind of story or like a a Tim Cook kind of thing, but he wasn't like top of his class. He never got really good grades. Yeah. When I was going to go dive into the Spielberg history, I thought, oh, you know, he was going to be too smart and bored by school because he was too much of a genius. So he dropped out in like eighth grade or something. No, he like he struggled in his grades, but he was a genius of, of different sort of of human experience, not so much of academia. I think you find that with a lot of creative people who are, I mean, basically geniuses is, you know, academic learning is really not their forte. Yeah. You know, we treat it like it's the ultimate test of intelligence, but it's just a kind. Yeah, it's just one metric. Exactly. And so, you know, some of the smartest people I know never finished college, but they're, you know, they're just freaking, they just understand everything just intuitively. It's amazing. Absolutely. He gets his first professional gig in 1968 with a little film called Amblin. That name might sound familiar because it later is the name of a studio he starts. But we're jumping ahead. So he makes this little movie called Amblin. And really, he makes this movie not for audiences. He's like, I made this to prove to the studios I can make a movie. So he makes it with executives in mind, not your theater-going audience. And it catches the eye of Sid Sheinberg, who at that time was president of Universal Television. He was impressed by it and gave Stephen a seven-year contract to direct television. So we're not to movies. We're not to big theatrical releases just yet. His first job was a pilot of an episode of Night Gallery 
with, you know, a few people you probably never heard of. It's written by Rod Serling oh and it God. stars Joan Crawford. <laughs> so imagine your first professional directing and Joan Crawford is That's your bananas. leading actor. This like tour de That's force. Bananas. Oh my gosh. And she was at first appalled. How dare they send this young director with no experience to come in and direct me? Of course. But of course, he wins her over, and she realized that he possessed what she called an intuitive inspiration that's often not recognized in Hollywood. She wrote this very nice letter uh, on his behalf. So she kind of came around when she realized, this kid's got something. He's got Maxie. He's got, this kid's got <laughs> Maxie. That's great. And he goes on to direct several more TV episodes, including an episode of Columbo. And then he finally gets a hand at directing three TV films. Well, can we clarify that real quick? He's directing episodes of Columbo at the age of 20. 20. He's 20, and Columbo was huge on TV at that time. Yeah. It's very humbling. It makes me reflect back on, like, you know, the goober that I was at 20 trying to just survive right. and fumble through college. Yes. And he, Spielberg's directing episodes of Columbo. It's yes. insane. It's ah, really impressive. I was probably playing Diablo 2 a lot at age 20 and uh, <laughs> sleeping until noon, but you know. So he gets his hand at directing three TV films. The first one is the movie Duel. Have you yeah, seen like, Duel at all, Ben? I actually have seen Duel. I know Duel. It's really good. Yeah, Duel is very exciting. Um, for those of you who haven't seen it, the real fast is it's a, it's a you never see the driver. It's a truck that chases a sales guy through the desert along highways. Yeah, and what's really interesting is this kind of fits into his continuing theme of an underdog being pursued by an indomitable force in order to survive. Steven's like, this came from my personal life. He's like, the truck was the schoolyard bully and the car was me. Oh, no. Now yeah. that makes, man, looking back on the movie, now that's really harsh. Oh, no. Steven's coming up at a time with a lot of these other huge names in directing. They were often called the movie brats. One of those movie brats is George Lucas. No surprise. So um, they do a lot of collabs, as we know. And Lucas said that at first he wasn't really sure about Steven. He thought he was too Hollywood. But when he saw Duel, he was like, I get it now. This kid's got Maxi. That's what <laughs> this kid's got Maxi. I love that. That's what Luke uh, Lucas saw that. That's great. And yeah. Gonna have, I mean, I'm sure you'll get into it. But they're going to have a really fun relationship in Hollywood during this time. Absolutely. And and to give you a sense of his sensibility and what he's willing to kind of fight for artistically as a vision. So in this movie, at the end, the truck goes over a cliff and crash, bang, boom. And the network, ABC Network, that he was producing this for, they were like, "Where's the explosion? It didn't blow up." You have to go reshoot this. Oh, no. And Spielberg's like, no, I'm not doing that. He's like, this truck has been unrelenting and chasing this poor salesman across the desert. It needs a slow death. It has to pay the price for what it did to our protagonist. I thought you were going to say Spielberg was like, who am I to you? J.J. Abrams? Get out of here. <laughs> but, uh, no, that's a, that's a good deep answer. That's nice. That's cool. Yeah. And again, I think it's just, it's one of those moments where he saw in his mind what needed to happen and he understood it. Yeah, right. And, and he was willing to stand up to execs. Again, he's not Steven Spielberg, air quotes at this point. He's just a dude. Right, so. right. He's just Steve S. He's just Stevie, with. yeah. So um, he goes on to make a couple more made-for-TV movies. Basically, 
the television wasn't a big enough screen for Steven. Let's just let's just get to that. So <laughs> in the late 60s, what we saw was a shift in movie studios where these young directors were coming in and given a lot of freedom. And this is that group I'm talking about, this fraternity of directors, if you will, the, the movie yeah. brats. Well, Ben, do you know who's in this group? I don't know this Brat Pack. Okay. Who, who else is in it? Michael Anthony Hall. Emilio Estevez. Oh, wait, wait, sorry. Wrong Brat Pack. Wrong one, wrong one. Oh, I was thinking the Rat Pack. You yeah. were Rat Pack. <laughs> Sammy okay, Davis Jr., Jr. yeah. <laughs> yeah right. so, <laughs> blue eyes. Jeez. Uh, okay. Those, those old crooners. Those old crooners. So we've got Steven Spielberg, of course, George Lucas, Brian De Palma, Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola. Never heard of any of these dudes. So <laughs> they, of course, go <laughs> on to- those garbage pale kids you just named? Exactly. I don't even know. These guys go on to make these amazing- movies, but they had this little like brotherhood. And Lucas was like, we were competitive. In doing so, we forced each other to be better. So they were each kind of helping the other be as successful as they could be. So even though they were competitive, it it was a fun way for them to just like push each other to the next level. And there's a great story where Lucas shows the group an early cut of Star Wars. And Steven's like, I knew it was going to be a success, even though George was like, he knew it was going to be a disaster. He's totally depressed. Right? We all know, like, George was at a very low point making Star Wars, particularly yeah. as it's, like, coming together. And that first edit, apparently, is just terrible. And apparently, Brian De Palma was super critical. He's like, you did this wrong, and you did this wrong. And he's like, he's the one who suggested, like, you need to anchor this story, like a scrawling text at the beginning to tell the audience about this world. And so De Palma kind of was the one who was like, you need that, who that came legendary that? scroll. I love this. Did you read about the story about them visiting each other's sets during Star Wars and Close Encounters? Uh, no, please tell. So this is awesome. So did you know that Steven Spielberg has a 2.5% stake in Star Wars? I uh, did not know that. So like you said, Lucas was feeling really bummed about Star Wars. It was like really fun in his head. And then as he started to make it, he's like, this is going to flop. People are going to hate this. And Lucas went and visited the set of uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind one day where Spielberg was shooting. And Lucas was like, this is amazing. This movie's going to be a hit and no one's going to care about Star Wars. You figured it out, Steven. And Steve was like, look, buddy, here's what we'll do. I'll give you two and a half percent of all the gross from Close Encounters of a Third Kind if you give me two and a half percent of Star Wars. Wow. And Lucas is like, oh, you're such a good friend. Thanks, bud. Like, I appreciate your support. Okay. Close Encounters of the Third Kind grossed $303 million. Star Wars, A New Hope, grossed $1.48 billion. Oh, my God. The second largest gross of all time. Oh, my God. So if you're doing the numbers there, the 2.5%, that's $13 million for Lucas and $40 million for Spielberg. It's good to be a supportive friend when you know that your horse is going to win. That's good. I think in the end, they all did well. I think, you know, none of them are hurting. So, you know. They all win. So his first theatrical debut comes in 1974 with The Sugarland Express. Mm, It follows a husband and wife trying to outrun the law. It's based on a real-life incident and stars Goldie Hawn. This marks the first collaboration between Spielberg and a little-known composer named John Williams. Oh, this is where it begins. This is where the legendary friendship begins. Right at the outset, his very first theatrical film debut, John Williams. And John Williams has scored all but five of Spielberg's directed movies. Really? I didn't realize it was that many. Yeah. That's awesome. 32, only five he did not score. 
That's amazing. But of course, let's get to the big breakout, which is Jaws in 1975. Yeah, this is a big deal. This is a really big deal. Big deal because they took a chance on Spielberg. They're banking a lot on this new up and coming director. Jaws, of course, is that horror thriller movie based on a novel by Peter Benchley about that great white shark attacking beachgoers at a summer resort town. It's prompting police chief Martin Brody to hunt it down with a marine biologist, played by the one and only Mr. Richard Dreyfus, Which whom Spielberg once said was his alter ego. I mean, they've done a lot of collaborations. A lot together. I mean, they have yeah. a they have a back-to-back, because he's going to show up in the next movie. But uh, right. there's a lot of stuff we could talk about this movie. But suffice to say, the script wasn't finished and there was no shark when they start shooting this movie. And Steven decides, I want authenticity, so we're not going to shoot on the back lot tank. We're not going to shoot out you know, right off the coast. We're going 12 miles offshore into open That's waters. Awesome. Dun, dun, dun. He's like, hey, this movie is about people being out of their element, battling something they can't comprehend. This is what we're going to do. Like my vision, we need to be out there. That's just crazy to me. And just like Columbo, I would like to remind people when he's directing Jaws, he's 26 years old. Wow. 26. So all these like seasoned actors <laughs> coming on set, the classically trained Robert Shaw, they're all coming on set. And there's this 26 year old guy saying, come on, everybody get in the boats. We're going to go. I built a robot shark out there. We're going to go shoot this movie. Like It's nuts. It's absolutely insane. He's shooting this thing and he's like, I have no clue what's going on. He's like, I'm trying to hold this movie in my head. It's a very lonely thing. And he ends up talking to Henry Hathaway, this director, the seasoned mm. director, And he's like, there'll be moments where you have no idea what you're doing. Guard that secret with your life or you lose the respect of everybody. So effectively, fake it till you make it is really what it comes down to. Yeah, right. Anybody who's been in any profession, you start a new job. You don't have to be a a movie maker. At some point, you probably wrestled with imposter syndrome. Like, what on earth am I doing? I'm just making this up. But that's kind of what you have to do. Every time we start recording on 80s High, that's exactly what I face. I mean, let's be real. What am I doing here? So basically, the shark sinks, and it takes almost a month to rebuild the thing. But it ultimately works out because you don't see the shark very much. And that's actually to the benefit of the movie. Again, this is one of those things where in old movies where you can't get everything you want, it almost makes the end product better because you're forced to be creative. And in this case... If you saw the shark more, it probably wouldn't have worked. And and John Williams actually said, seeing the shark would change the whole psychology of the movie. What's great is you just get these hints of the shark. The score is faint when it's far away. It's louder as the shark approaches. The music advertises the shark's presence or attitude by how we manage the notes. It's like Alien, right? That's why Alien's so successful. You never really see it yes. that much. And they did that on purpose. Yeah. And it made it a much better movie. Yeah, because what you don't see is generally scarier than what you do. 100%. So there's not much shark in Jaws, but it's actually to its benefit. Oh, yeah, because you're always like, where's the shark? That's where the whole, whole fun for the old SNL skit from this era of the shark who would ring the doorbell. The great way would just show up at your apartment. You don't know where he's going to show up. It's terrifying. So he makes this movie triple the budget and two and a half times beyond schedule. Oh, boy. Your annual review is not going to be good that year. But... Jaws made more money than any film ever made up to that point. So, (laughs) kind of a pass. (laughs) Insane. 
The studio shakes a fist in one hand and pats him on the back with the other. Well, and he says, Spielberg says like Jaws was the turning point in his career that he said it was it was such a big hit that Hollywood basically, to quote, would just cut me blank checks and I could do whatever I wanted to do. After yeah, that. it was his free pass. Absolutely. Because it broke that gross, like you said, won three Academy Awards. It was nominated for Best Picture. This is his second movie and he strikes gold already. He's so good. Well, guess what? It's a rich vein of gold because two years later, he dusts off Firelight, that little homemade movie he made back in the day, and repurposes it as Close Encounters of the Third Kind, back with Mr. Sir Richard Dreyfus once again, and everyone's favorite 80s mom, Melinda Dillon. Yes! This is the She's third so time good. we've gotten to talk about her. So she's obviously showed up in Christmas Story. She's shown up in Harry and the Hendersons. We've covered both of those episodes. Go check them out. Both season two. So this tells the story of Roy Neary, an everyday blue-collar worker in Indiana whose life changes after an encounter with a UFO. What Spielberg said is that Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey really pushed him to take Close Encounters to the next level because he saw that movie and he, like it blew his mind. So again, he takes that film he made at age 17, Firelight, and recreates it into this story. And it has some of that personal element, once again, with this family and dissolution. There's even the part where the kid is yelling at the dad, cry baby, cry baby. And he said he actually yelled that at his dad. Oh, interesting. So that was right out of his personal life, which is, wow, powerful. Well, and this goes back to the collaboration with John Williams. You know, beautiful scores that litter and set the mood, but just the simple mm-hmm. are like some of the fewest, most recognizable notes from 80s cinema. Yeah. <laughs> it's huge. Yeah. I love that movie. And Stephen was like, you know, the idea that the conversation would be in sound and light was appealing. He's like, sure, mathematics would be much more likely, but there's more emotion if it's music Yeah, is right. the way that we speak with one another. You're automatically going to know those notes. It's not even music. It's just tones. It's just tones in succession. And you're like, oh, I know what that's from. And so Close Encounters, in clarifying, he he wrote and directed Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yes. It gets six Academy Award nominations. Mm. And that makes Spielberg the first director in history to direct back-to-back million-dollar grossing films Mm. with Jaws and Close Encounters. So those blank checks just keep on a-coming. They do, but he's going to close out the 70s with kind of a flop, not a real banger. Uh-oh. We've got the movie 1941 that comes out in 1979. Super confusing, but anyway. Super confusing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hard to research. <laughs> uh, this was his attempt to make a comedy. He was like, I want to do something that's kind of fun and silly and interesting You know, he's like, I'm coming off of Jaws and Close Encounters. I'm invulnerable. I've got this blank check from Hollywood. I can do what I want. Well, this (laughs) movie got eviscerated. Yeah. And he was crushed by this movie being a flop. But a good friend of his, George Lucas, comes to his rescue. But we got to learn about that in chemistry class. Ben, is there anything we need to pick up in history before we head down the hall to learn a little bit more about Steven Spielberg in the 80s, as well as our experiences, our joy of taking in his 80s works. No, I think we have done a fantastic job bringing us up to speed 
88 miles per hour into the 80s uh, and would love to cover what Sir Spielberg, no longer just Stevie S on the Universal lot, uh, goes on to continue to accomplish. All right. Well, let's hop on our bikes, strap a milk crate to the front and head for the moon (laughs) because I think something magical is going to happen in the 80s. And of course, we have to be in chemistry class to find out. Okay, let's talk a little bit about some of our favorite movies. And not just us, Ben. We want to talk about our listeners' favorite movies as well. So we put this question to the class of 80s. Hi. Hard choice. What's your favorite 1980 Steven Spielberg movie? Now, we also covered movies not just that he directed, but movies that he also wrote, produced, etc., This included some real bangers, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Poltergeist, E.T. the Extraterrestrial, Back to Future 1 and 2, Gremlins, The Goonies, and American Tale, Batteries Not Included, Harry and the Hendersons, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, The Land Before Time, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. We gave a lot of options. We gave a lot of options. I can't say there's a bad one in the bunch. Nope. So what we got is a bit of a smattering. We had votes for Raiders, Goonies, Back to the Future, E.T., and Poltergeist. I mean, this is a tough one to choose just one. Well, and I like that the class was kind of like evenly split on it for the most part. Like not everyone just went, not everybody went all in on Raiders or all in on E.T. Like there was kind of equal love for a lot of these titles, which which shows what a good director is. He's He's just not known for his one hit wonder. I almost wish we had rank choice where we could get like everyone's first, second, third, and then we could really compare and see what the interplay is. Are we capturing all of these movies? But we also decided to do something fun on Instagram and we put a couple polls out. So if you're not following us on Instagram, you should go over and do that. We do some fun polls every now and then. And the first one was, which 1980s Spielberg movie do you love the most? Raiders or E.T.? Oh, ooh, that was hard. Raiders edged out a little bit at 53%. Just a little bit more for Raiders. But amazing it's that close, honestly. And then we also asked, what classic 80s flick do you love more, Goonies or Gremlins? And again, these are two movies that he produced. But this is a little more lopsided, 65% for Goonies. I get it. I mean, Goonies is one of the most hallmark film properties of the 80s. Of I mean, come on. Yeah, and you know he's got a story writing credit as well as a producer credit on The Goonies, whereas he only is executive producer for Gremlins. So I don't know, maybe there's just a little more Spielberg yeah, magic. a little more Spielberg that, there. That edges The Goonies out. I don't know. But you can listen to our episode about Gremlins, season one of 80s High. Oh, God, did we have such a good time. It was it's so such much a good fun. episode. Oh, it's my so goodness. Good. So, Ben, what are some of your favorite Spielberg movies? And we can talk about ones he directed, ones that he produced or wrote. What rises to the top for you? For here, you want me to keep focused on the 80s, right? I would say mostly, but you know what? We're talking about chemistry. This can obviously go beyond that. So if you've got a favorite after that, let's just be clear. If anyone's listened to two episodes of this podcast already, they know what's at the top. (laughs) So we need to hear that too, because there's no reason to talk about it later. This is chemistry. So yeah, what what are your favorites across the board, the span of time? (laughs) Well, I'll give you a little curveball here. I would say... One, I'm not saying it's a favorite, but the one I most recently watched, because homework for Mm. this, I was reading through his movies. It's like, you know what? I'm not sure I've ever seen that. I just watched The Color Purple this week. Oh, okay. Yeah. And oh my God, is that an incredible film? 
I have not seen this in such a long time. I don't remember a lot of it. I was fairly young when I saw it. Well, and that's probably why we didn't see it as little kids, because it's a heavy adult film. That is very um, true. The subject you know, matter is intense, for sure. Yeah, it's post-emancipation South. It's dark. But, you know, who really just blows me away in it is Whoopi Goldberg, of course, the star of the film. Mm. You think of Whoopi... When I think of Whoopi, I think of Ghost and Sister Act right. and The View. <laughs> like, it's a, to see her crush it in color pur- The Color Purple is awesome. Also, Oprah's first acting credit, I believe. Yeah, right. Exactly. Oprah's in it, too. Mm. I would say for 80s, I don't have a huge surprise curveball for any of this. I'm a sucker for Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay. Always important for people to remember, it is not classically titled Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. It was just called Raiders of the Lost Ark. And they didn't add the Indiana Jones marker later. Great adventure. But the other one here that I'll, I'll give that I think might be surprising, I'm not sure if I mentioned on the show yet. I absolutely adore 1988's Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh, yes. I love it. It was sort of the exposure of his idea of like cartoons could be of an adult nature because the cartoons are very adulty. It's a great noir crime film. Mm -hmm. It's a noir detective 1930s kind of thing. Christopher Lloyd's amazing in it. I just adore that film. It's great. So good. So yeah, for the 80s, I would say from his films at that time, Raiders and uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit really come to the top for me. If I don't stay entirely focused on the 80s, it is not a surprise to anyone listening to the show that Jurassic Park was one of the most formative novels and films that I had as a child. Almost seven years ago, when Jurassic World was coming out, I did a movie marathon party with friends, all themed, food, decor, all things like that. We watched all the Jurassic Park movies and then went to a midnight showing of Jurassic World. That started an annual movie party we do in our household called Illogy. Mm -hmm. And the second one we did was watching all three Back to the Future. (laughs) So there's a lot of Spielberg going on in our house with Jurassic Park movie marathons and Back to the Future marathons. Jaws has almost won one of those, by the way. We almost did Jaws one year. Mm. Uh, but Jaws 3 is r- a real hard watch. Yeah. That is a very difficult movie to get through. <laughs> Yourself? And for me, I already mentioned, like, as a classic movie, I love Duel. I will watch that movie. Yeah. That's a movie just to pop on and watch. I just, I love it. This idea of outrunning something that is is bigger than you. And I just, I, I love it so much. And it's shot so amazingly for, I thought it was a theatrical movie. I only realized in doing this, it was a, a TV movie release, but um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. good. Uh, from the 80s, I think the standout, I mean, there's so many good ones, but E.T. I think is probably my favorite of the 80s movies he's directed. The childhood wonder of it all and the, you know, just uh, we'll get more to it uh, as we talk about his 80s movies, but oh, just so good. Well, and it's funny you mentioned Poltergeist and Homeroom because E.T. and Poltergeist both came out in the summer of 1982, mm. which Time Magazine ended up calling the Summer of Spielberg. Oh, when those two came out. Summer of that Spielberg. Was pretty cool. I love that. In the 90s, you know, Jurassic Park obviously was an amazing, is still an amazing movie. It's so, oh man, the, the effects to this day are still pretty freaking impressive, which is, yeah. which is wild for the early 90s. Uh, and I would say a close second is Saving Private Ryan. Such a... Oh, my God. I mean, it's hard. It's a brutal film. But my goodness, just so well done. A few years ago, my wife and I visited France and we took a bus out to Normandy and got oh. to go out on Normandy Beach and like see all that stuff. Oh. And honestly, if it weren't for Spielberg's dramatization through Saving Private Ryan, I don't think I would have had the reverence for the site that I did. Because how he yeah. scripts that... The first, you know, movement of that movie, 
just really shows how intense and horrifying and how much was on the line and, you know, how the Allies almost lost it. And if it weren't for that, I, I think it's hard to put that history in context and really understand its impact. Yeah, and I think we're we're definitely going to see that as well with uh, Schindler's List and even some of his other yeah. movies that are kind of of a historic nature. So you're absolutely right. And um, I would say, you know, going for me going past the '90s into the 2000s, I really like Catch Me If You Can. I think that's, that's just a, a great fun, film. That's so fun. A fun movie. It just it it feels of the era and the way it's shot and the score and the the look and the aesthetic. It's just so cool. Uh, and if we look at movies that he produced, particularly if you talk about, you know, a, a franchise, I mean, Back to the Future, how can it not be a standout? It's legendary. Zemeckis. Oh, my goodness. So good. You know what's kind of fun that kind of combines a lot of his movies? Did you ever see Super 8, speaking of movies that oh, came out much later yeah. in the 80s? I did. I feel like it's the continuation. It's, it's like if the Goonies were all into making movies. Like, it sort of took his love of filmmaking and a Goonies vibe. It feels like an homage to... His era of kids who grew up with cameras in their hands making movies. It's like two Spielberg and his generation of directors. It's really kind of a love note to them. I love that aspect of it. I didn't love the alien aspect. I I didn't think they handled it well. No, but but the kids were great. Oh, my gosh. They were amazing. And and that first part of the movie was just golden. But, uh, oh, man, so good. Well, Well, speaking of movies of the 80s, let's talk a little bit about some of the Movies that Spielberg directed, and also we'll talk a little bit about writing and producing as well. So as we mentioned, 79, he has a movie flop, it ain't going so well. But his good old buddy George Lucas comes around and is like, I think I've got something for you. I think there's something here that works. Because Steven wants to make a Bond movie, as a matter of fact. Oh, that's right. But George has this idea. He's like, I've got this idea for a pulpy action movie. It's about an archaeologist. And every scene is a cliffhanger. It's going to be an (laughs) all-out B movie that doesn't take itself seriously. And basically, George, Stephen, and Lawrence Kasdan, who is legendary screenwriter. I think he's screenwrote at least two of the original Star Wars movies, the first trilogy, I know he worked on Force Awakens. You know, he's worked on the uh, Indiana Jones. Just amazing. They come together for this meeting where they really talk about what this character is going to be, what this movie is going to be about. And you can actually find a transcript of this conversation. It's pretty incredible. That's awesome. It's like the origin of the whip and how it's used and what does he fear and all this stuff. So we'll put a link in the show notes, but it's easily findable. Uh, There's just this great conversation uh, between the three of them. Unfortunately, though, Lucas wants him, but the studios kind of don't want Steven right now. He doesn't have a good reputation. You know why? Yeah, 1941 didn't help. Well, not only that, all his movies, over budget, over time. <laughs> Two things a studio does doth not want from a director. And so they're kind of like, we don't know. And so Steven's like, listen, I cannot let you down. You're my friend. I will do this on time and on budget. And he said his previous films taught him how to be more economical. George said, you know what? Okay. And if this movie's a hit, I want you to direct two more. (laughs) And so it was. And so they did. And so they did. And Raiders of the Lost Ark, of course, this massive success that goes on to two more movies in the 80s, another one later, and still another one to come. I will throw out a fun tribute. I um, So you know the scene after in the beginning where he escapes 
the temple after the boulder has fallen and he runs back to the float plane that's waiting on the river and it takes mm. off from the river and the snakes in there. Uh, I have gotten to visit that river where that scene was shot, which is oh. on the island of Kauai in Hawaii. Oh, uh, that's my only connection to Indiana Jones that I have. I thought you I didn't just outrun that any boulders. There was nothing coming down the mountain at you. <laughs> well, I don't know that hike you and I did not too long ago. There were boulders coming down the mountain. We had to dodge some rocks. We had some scree for sure. It was a little. Uh... We were truly Indiana Joneses there. Yeah, it's, it was. It wasn't that big of a boulder, but oh man, <laughs> it was. It was bad enough. So that's 1981. Year after 1982, ET, the extraterrestrial. Yep. Which apparently, when he first had this idea, wasn't about extraterrestrials. It was what? about how divorce traumatizes a child. So what did E.T. stand for before it was about aliens? Well, I don't think that was the name of the movie. I just think okay. he had this idea for – he had a script or an idea for a movie. And he said the theme would be how do you fill a child's heart? It would need an extraordinary event to take place. And then he's like, well, an extraterrestrial coming into his life. That makes sense. And so ultimately it ends up being – Again, much like Close Encounters, extraterrestrial, little kid. It's not a retread, though, but, you know, a a familiar territory, if you will. You know, I feel like what you just said is sort of like, I'm going to try and make an extension here that I don't know if it's going to work or not. But it's kind of like how I perceived Pixar 20 years ago. Hmm. Where like Pixar, a lot of Pixar films start with a very specific tiny nugget about a child's emotional step in life. Like, Toy Story was like that. Monsters, Inc. was like that. And then they got real specific and like transparent of like Inside Out and Soul were like specifically about emotions and soul. But like starting with that nugget can create such a great, you know, like Spielberg is all character centric. That's how you start. You have to start with what the character is going through. Absolutely. Yeah. You start with that core and then you kind of put everything around that and in service of, you know, whatever that question or that interesting purpose is, which I think is really cool. You know, Drew Barrymore said he created an otherworldly scenario in a suburban setting with real families. And he said, by doing so, you could have implausible scenarios because they were grounded in human stories. Speaking of Drew, Amazing. do you know yeah. Spielberg is her godfather? Oh, wow. So Spielberg is the godfather to both Drew Barrymore and Gwyneth Paltrow. Holy smokes. Who who calls Spielberg Uncle Morty. Wow. (laughs) Is her nickname for him as the godfather. I thought that was kind of fun. That's incredible. That's incredible. Right? What was also incredible, too, is watching the documentary and how he worked with the kids in this movie in particular to elicit the acting that he needed was so amazing. Leonardo DiCaprio, who didn't work with him in this film, but, you know, he said that Stephen knew how to take kids to darker places, but still handle them with kid gloves. And there's this great shot of, it's the part where Elliot realizes E.T. is still alive. He sees the glowing when he's in the, the like, the creepy, all those tubes and plastic oh, yeah, rooms and yeah, everything. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he's in that, like, case with the glass top. It's almost like a fridge and the light glows and he just kind of screams out. They just show this great scene where he's directing him and he's like, okay, now how about this way? No, bigger, you're excited. And just the way he kind of like nurtures the actor yeah. through that was just really cool to see. You know, it's funny you say that, completely unrelated to my research for this episode. I was watching an interview recently with Christian Bale. GQ mm. does these great series where it's like an actor breaks down their own career and they like look back on their major movies and just have cool little insights. And Christian Bale was talking about Empire of the Sun. Yep. which is a, a 1987 film that Spielberg produced and directed. Again, a very heavy topic, but Bale's like a little kid in it. 
And Bale talked about just what an incredible director Spielberg is. Bale said in Hollywood, there's a lesson that directors say, I've never worked with kids or animals. Right. Because they're so hard. Right. But that, but that Spielberg had this way of like really respecting child actors and talking to them like older than their age that really made them feel like much more part of the production. It's really impressive. It's so cool. And you definitely see that in that little clip and that experience. And and really everyone who worked with him as a kid, you know, Christian Bale's in that doc as well. Talk yeah. about that experience, which is so cool. 1984, we get the sequel, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. So this is a movie where he meets Kate Capshaw. She plays... Willie Scott! Willie Scott. She's the co-lead along with Harrison Ford. And we're going to see her name pop up a little bit later. So put a pin in that for Miss Capshaw. She's going to come back. In that same year, Spielberg, Frank Marshall, and Kathleen Kennedy found the production company Amblin Entertainment. So that very like early movie, Amblin, comes back. It drops the little apostrophe, but we get Amblin Entertainment. I love that like a movie he named when he was like just a little kid gets to be this like multi-billion dollar valued production company later on. Yes. In between 84 and 90, Steven Spielberg is producer, executive producer on 19 feature films. This includes The Goonies, The Money Pit, Joe versus the Volcano, Batteries Not Included. Talked about that earlier this season. Back to the Future, Cape Fear, and Who Framed Roger Rabbit? So, yeah, Amblin went on to have massive, amazing, successful movies. Super cool. 85, we get the color purple. Yeah. Up to this point, Stephen is criticized as being too mainstream, too sentimental. He's not a serious artist. He's just making summer blockbusters for the masses. You know, those drones that'll go lap up all the inane <laughs> drivel. These people have no joy. So anyway... <laughs> People have no joy. So because of this, he's like, okay. And he decides to make the color purple. Very heavy yeah. subject matter has been mentioned. This is an adaptation of Alice Walker's Pulitzer Prize winning novel of the same name. It's about a generation of empowered African-American women during Depression era America. And he said, this is really my first mature film that focused on substantive humanistic subject matter. And he wanted to create a matriarchal African-American worldview in the presence of patriarchal repression and violence. This is big. And Oprah even says, she's like, you know, in this movie, he's venturing into some territory where he has to really get it right. Or a lot of people are going to be upset. And that's a really big deal. This is a huge risk here. Mm. And I think there's just such an interesting tone with The Color Purple. And you see it come up in later cinema when he does heavier stuff like Schindler's List and things like that. But at this time, like, even though he did Jaws, Jaws is still kind of fun. It's like an adventure. It's like three buddies going on a shark fishing yeah, yeah, trip. Yeah. Like, it's still kind of fun. Color Purple is not fun. Mm-hmm. It, it's a it's an incredible movie, but it's such a different tonal shift than everything. He's, you still very clearly see his, like, directorial hallmarks and, like, how he shoots a movie and how people Absolutely. act. But as far as just content and tone, holy cow strapping. This is not like I invite all your friends over. We're going to have a lighthearted night of drinking wine and watching Spielberg. Like, it's very different than everything else. You know, one of the criticism is that the movie wasn't as gritty or got in some of the realism that the book did. And obviously that's true. But it's also, you know, A, it's not the qualities that Stephen is known for. Yeah. And he said he wanted to make a prettier picture than what was in the text. And so 
you get this compromise that, as you said, is still pretty powerful, but maybe doesn't go to that same level as it could have. But in a way, it makes it a little less accessible to a, yeah. a bigger audience. And we're going to see this come again with uh, Schindler's List in particular. And at the opposite end of that, the heaviness of that, that spectrum that year, like you said, also The Goonies comes out that year, which we could do several episodes on The Goonies. There's a lot Fair. to cover there. But I will just say the fun little fact I found out here is that when Spielberg was a kid, his group of friends, they called themselves The Goon Squad. Really? Which is where The Goonies comes from. Oh, that's so cool. I thought that was kind of neat. That was great. I love it. Well, in addition to 1985 being the year of uh, making the, or releasing, I should say, The Color Purple, it's also the year that he marries actress Amy Irving. Yes. And they had met when she auditioned for Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So they've known each other for a while. They actually had a daughter together, Jessica, in 1976. They broke up. They got back together. And then that later that year in 85, they also had their son, Max. And so in his personal life, 85 is also a pretty significant year. So it's not only the time that he really kind of uh, changes the tone and subject matter of his movies, but also he's got this huge, you know, personal milestone. Empire of the Sun, as you mentioned, starring Christian Bale is a very yeah. young Christian Bale. Did not even look like him. I didn't know it was him until they interviewed current day Christian. And I was like, oh, that's him. Like he didn't. Look like his see, younger he's self. He's got like a bone structure that you can like see from his childhood. Like there's something about his jaws and his chin and his cheekbones. I think bones. his hair is so different. Like he almost looked like River yeah. Phoenix as a little kid. Like or at least oh, yeah. in that hmm. movie. That's a good comparison. But yeah, so Empire of the Sun comes out in 1987. Again, some some pretty heavy subject matter. It was really inspired from personal stories of Japanese prisoners who were in American internment camps. This movie, I think, didn't quite land where he wanted it to. and wasn't quite the success that he had hoped for. But he's going to close out the 80s, well, on a mixed note. First off, the third Indiana Jones film, Last Crusade, comes out in 1989, thus fulfilling his three-movie contract obligation. This might be sacrilege. This is my favorite Indiana Jones movie by far. You know, I actually hear that from a lot of uh, Indiana Jones fans, where it's it's Last Crusade is their favorite. When you were a kid, like a lot of people when they were kids, it's sort of like Return of the Jedi, when you were a mm-hmm. kid, you liked all the silliness of the Ewoks and things like that. But when you grow up, you're like, Empire Strikes Back, bro. I still love Return of the Jedi. Maybe I'm fun. just a child at heart. I don't know. But that's still my favorite of the three. And you know what I think wins this one over is the chemistry between Sean Connery and oh, Harrison so Ford. so good together. It's so, so freaking good, good. I think it's a great story. I love it all. It's so much yeah. fun. Last Crusade's amazing. Junior, don't call me Junior, Junior. Dad. Indy was the dog. It's just like so good. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, they're both like at their height right there. They're so good. So, you know, that movie does well, but also unfortunately in 1989, Amy and Steven are divorced. Yeah. So kind of a personal low. He really feels bad about his son being this product of divorce much like he was he knows what it is like to have that experience you know they share custody and both have time in max's life but i I think that was particularly hard for him because again of his own childhood and experience just some other things to clean up from the 80s notable writing producing credits we've mentioned poltergeist the goonies gremlins technically both gremlins though New Batch comes out in 90. In the 90s, yeah. All three Back to the Future movies, but again, the third one comes out in 90. And The Land Before Time. I was going to say, talk about childhood trauma. Uh, yeah. 
you know, when 80s kids talk about like the traumatic things they watched as a kid, as we covered, a lot of times they'll they'll cite Artax, uh, you know, sinking into the swamp of sorrows in the story. Bambi is another one. It's a pre-80s movie, but yeah. And Land Before Time, mm-hmm. when Littlefoot's mom dies and passing of the tree star, like that's another childhood trauma moment from cinema that people cite a lot from the time. And then that's another Spielberg film. It's got a stamp on it. A hundred percent. So another thing we want to talk about in chemistry is, you know, we, we talk a lot about some of these uh, techniques or approaches that he does to filmmaking. And some of these are really signature styles of his directing that, again, if you don't study film or really try to understand it on a philosophical level, you may not realize all of these approaches to filmmaking that he often will incorporate into a lot of his movies. So we want to talk a little bit about some of the craft that he brings to the cinematic experience. Absolutely. No, I was actually really excited to talk about this. And and before we get into the specifics of what the hallmarks are, I think one of the things that makes Spielberg so successful is he is his own style. Like you Mm. don't plug Spielberg into another style or genre of film. It is Spielberg's style of directing Mm -hmm. and storytelling and it's exceptional. It's so good. And that's that's one of the things that makes him the best of all time. Absolutely. A lot of his movies, both adults and kids can enjoy. And that mm. sounds very normal for today. You're like, oh, Marvel movies, like whatever, superhero things. But that was a pretty novel idea before the 80s and before Spielberg started doing it, that movies were either for adults yep. or very clearly for little, little kids. Yeah. But a lot of his films are really fun for kids and adults to watch. And that is part of his hallmark. That's a big thing. Absolutely. I'll bring it back and then I'll let you expound upon it because you first brought it up. But what's what's a hallmark of a lot of his films is his story is typically about ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances of overwhelming scale. Yeah. When I read that, I loved it, A, because I personally, I feel like that's been lost in a lot of cinema today. I I feel like when I see movies that appeal to the teenage crowd, the teenagers all have magical abilities in them. You're you're either a wizard or you're a superhero discovering your powers as a teenager. But in Spielberg's films, they were just normal, everyday people who suddenly encountered massive aliens from another world, a shark that could not be filled in its tummy. It was always hungry. And that just made it amazing because you could see yourself in those shoes so much easier as a normal person experiencing that. I I loved that. Yeah. And it comes back to that quote that Drew Barrymore had, where when you have it anchored in this reality, you can go to this otherworldly place because you have something familiar. And I think that's a, a pretty classic chestnut of any kind of storytelling. We joked about like wizards and such, but even something like Harry Potter starts off with this normal existence that then becomes fantastical. Yeah. But Indiana Jones doesn't have special powers, right? He has a whip and he's got a little bit of like adventurous spirit and maybe some good luck on his side, but that's it. You know, he's not, uh, he's not a superhero. I love that. And that's another thing that makes, you know, we talked about authenticity, that nostalgia was helpful at the beginning of the study that I got into this week, the study of nostalgia bringing authenticity to it. You know, another thing I feel like you don't see as much these days, it's just where the technology and, and storytelling has gone. To give these overwhelming scale places, he had massive, incredible sets built to shoot this stuff in. And again, I feel like today often it's either green screened 
or people are just shooting in structures that already exist. We're doing an office drama, so we're going to rent out this office building for six months mm. and shoot in it. Where you think of like the ships and the wonderlands in the film Hook. He built an entire airport for the terminal with Tom Hanks later on. Like these incredible sets that he puts these people in just makes them feel much more real and tangible and, and interesting. It's another Spielberg-ism that I just love of his, his filmmaking. Yeah, absolutely. What else we got? Well, as you've alluded to so much in his personal life, a lot of times the protagonist has a strained relationship with their father. Yeah. It's estranged or it's complicated. And, you know, in some of the films it's resolved in the end and some it, uh, maybe not so much. You know, think of, you think of more modern, the Tom Cruise in War of the Worlds, incredibly strained relationship with his kids in that. And then Last Crusade, right? Last Crusade is all about this complicated father figure. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a product of Spielberg's life. But also, I, I just recognize tapping into it. You know, you talked about, you know, historically, father figures and men were not supposed to be emotionally available. And so there wasn't much of a story to tell there. And Spielberg said, no, these are real dynamic people. And these are interesting family relationships. And we should all stop being hush-hush about it. And let's all share in this shared human experience that families can be complicated. <laughs> and it's not always clean. He made some comment about suburbia being his religion. And he said, you know, the, the idea that everyone has this perfect life and nothing ever bad happens, there's no divorce, is an absolute lie and fabrication. Yeah. And so that's why I think he he made it such a central part. And a lot of his stuff is set in suburbs. You know, you think about E.T., Poltergeist. Uh, these are just in like suburbia. They're not out in the woods. They're not out in these big urban centers. They're just, uh, you know, kind of this this product of a generation. Oh, yeah. Some little ones that are kind of fun. I mean, you mentioned John Williams. That's a classic thing. He yep. loves showing shooting stars, like while people are talking and looking up at shooting oh, stars. Oh, yeah. He loves the really powerful defined beams from flashlights. Mm. Um, so you think of like the kids in E.T. Or I always love the scene when um, Laura Dern finds the wreckage after the T-Rex attack in Jurassic Park. And her bouncing flashlight beam is all over the place trying to locate yes. Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. You know, th those are Spielberg hallmarks. He's really good at long takes. So without cutting, like being able to... You know, I, I guess in Hollywood, he's sort of notorious for loving dolly takes. So he loves mm. long dolly shots and, and doing that kind of stuff is great. He's really great at color. So he uses color a lot. Like um, it'll be a gray or a muted scene, but the really colorful object draws your eye to that shot. Yeah. Or if he's going somewhere fantastical from the ordinary. So if you're going somewhere normal, but now he wants you to know you're in something fantastical or incredible, it'll be super colorful and vibrant. I think that's really well demonstrated best in when he did the movie adaptation of the novel Ready Player One. Mm. And so like the normal world is dirty and drab, this post-apocalypse. But when you go into, I forget the name of it, the, the video game world where they all are, it's like you're in a video game, super colorful and poppy. Right. We're talking about Spielberg. We need to be critical of continuity. And apparently he is an animal on the cutting room floor and in editing for continuity, especially for him. Geography is really important. Like where were people heading? Where were people yep. going last? Where do they leave stuff? And he does that a lot. And when I point this out, you, the listener, are never going to be able to unsee this in a Spielberg movie ever again. But he's very big on shooting the eyes of the character and where they're looking. And mm -hmm. then you look, the next shot is what they're seeing and back and forth yeah. between characters that's a big spielbergism and that's how he keeps it character focused you're not following a vehicle you're following the person watching the vehicle drive away or the person driving the vehicle that's sort of how you frame it up it's always person-centric 
There's this really great shot of Oscar Schindler and Schindler's List where he's smoking this cigarette and he's watching these three Nazi, I think, soldiers or generals or whoever at this table. And you just see him kind of staring in that direction and it kind of moves over there. But that's a great example. And, you know, the geography is so important. He's like, I can create suspense, but the audience has to know where all the characters are and what the stakes are. Yeah. And so the geography helps to do that because he's like, if you don't know where things are, then I'm not doing my job right and creating the suspense because you're just confused and confusion is not suspense confusion is just confusion so that's not helping so i I have just one final one and it sort of goes hand in hand with john williams the partnership but he is really good at sound editing and sound design of movies Mm. to tell parts of the story that aren't necessarily being shot you know whether that's a do 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 instead of math for close encounters, or you know the music how you talked about with Jaws. Mm-hmm. I think one that's the best example of it is uh, again in Jurassic Park, right before the scene I just talked about, when they're sitting there waiting in the vehicle and oh, uh, yeah. the stomp happens. Yeah, you see the, the the water vibrate back and forth across the cup on the dashboard, but the stomping is getting closer mm. and faster and louder, and you just know that means the Rex is coming. That's oh, bad news. So good. He does that in a lot of his films, and that's really amazing. He's relying on all the senses to tell a story. And what's so amazing, you know, he talks about the craft of storytelling. He's like, when I go into each scene, I don't know what's going to happen. And when it's on the verge of panic, that's when I get my good ideas. So you always think like a seasoned director is going to come in. They're going to have total confidence. They're going to know where everything's going to happen. I've planned it all out, this, 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 and this. And he's very like extemporaneous of the moment. And just the fact that Steven Spielberg, all caps, you know, as this like, (laughs) as this tour de force still goes into a movie, not understanding how it's going to work, but that intuition kind of drives it. Yeah. Is amazing. It's brilliant. It's fascinating. It's mind boggling. We quizzed our class of 80s high on these. You know, can you spot the Spielberg-isms, the trademarks of his films? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. We, we gave them a list of all of these items and said, you know, can you pull out the one that's a lie? Which one of these is not a trademark of Spielberg? We gave them seven options and only three got votes. So there were votes for using lens flares. Mm. There were votes for making cameos in his own movies. And there were votes for shooting scenes in the rearview mirrors of cars. And so with those three options, you know, uh, Duel is a great example where he like started to get into that, like shooting in the rearview mirror a bunch, mm-hmm. both in the character's eyes to see tension and horror and fear, but also like what was behind them. There's a great shot in the Sugarland Express where I think you're in with like the sheriff during the chase and you can see his eyes in the rearview mirror and you see Goldie Hawn in the car in front of them and she's like tracing something on the window and it's just there's so much depth to the shot it's so cool the other one making cameos in his movies whether on purpose or accidental he was inspired by alfred hitchcock and does make cameos in a lot of his films my favorite accidental one is actually in jaws remember he's a young filmmaker he's not he's still learning stuff and i don't know the exact scene but brody's walking around downtown in amity and a door shuts a glass door shuts when the door shuts, you see Spielberg behind oh, the camera the reflection. in the reflection of the glass door. That's so good. Uh, which is an awesome shot. So using lens flares, that was the one. That is not a Spielberg thing. Lens flares, you know, that's definitely like a Michael Bay sort of love. J.J. Abrams uses a lot of lens mm-hmm. flares. Yeah. But that's it not definitely a takes a lot thing. of inspiration. Again, Super 8, a lot of inspiration from Spielberg. But yeah, definitely of a, a slightly later generation, I would say. Yeah, 100%. 
But that's all I have for the isms. I do want to just kind of wrap up with just some general sentiments of Steven Spielberg and his work. So I've got a couple things here. So in terms of praise, Stephen Rowley, writing for Senses of Cinema, discussed Spielberg's strengths as a filmmaker, saying there's a welcome complexity of tone and approach, and Spielberg continues to take risks with his body of work continuing to grow more impressive and ambitious. And he concludes that he only received limited begrudging recognition from critics. <laughs> and I think that's true. Again, there's this whole thing of like, you can't be mainstream and be artistic. You're either one or the other. Yeah, and right, one's a right. sellout and one is integrity. Generally, a lot of people who criticize him say that his films are sentimental, moralistic, sometimes melodramatic. Author Peter Biskind in his book, Easy Rider Raging Bulls, says... Spielberg is infantilizing the audience, reconstituting the spectator as child, then overwhelming him or her with sound and spectacle, obliterating irony, aesthetic self-consciousness, and critical reflection. Mm. First off, Peter, who hurt you and how can we help? (laughs) Right, right. Come on, man. And just number two, have we as a society become so cynical of being sentimental? Why is that a bad thing? Yeah. Is that weakness? What's going on there? Exactly. Because I'm like, I get it. If it's to an extreme, it could be like sappy or saccharine. It could be kind of self-indulgent. But I'm like, what's more self-indulgent than being pretentious? I mean, pretentiousness is all about exaggerated importance and meaning. And it's just like, I get annoyed with some critics who say it's either one or the other. It can't be both. And this attack on sentimentality which is really feelings of tenderness, sadness, and nostalgia, which is ostensibly what this podcast is about. It's why we made it. It's why <laughs> it's you're why listening right now. Wait, are we are we others who have been inspired by Spielberg to create more things? Look at this. Look at everyone he's influenced. I just don't understand. Like, why is this a taboo bad thing? It shouldn't be. And, and I don't think that mainstream can't be artistic. I would entirely concur with that, too. You know, it's hard because sometimes things go mainstream because... There have been strategic marketers involved who try and, you know, who have done things to help make things very profitable and exciting in the zeitgeist. But sometimes something is truly genius and artistic and it can be mainstream because everybody recognizes that genius. So my analysis, don't be an assassin of joy. (laughs) Not needed. Nobody's asking you to do it. Just don't do it. So I think that's where I want to leave off with chemistry, unless there's anything else, Benjamin, that we got to talk about before we find out what happened after the 80s. I think I would be happy to transition from Doc Brown's 80s chemistry lab into the future of Minority Report. Oh, okay. And to know the success of Spielberg before even he does. Well, put on the brakes, buddy, because it's lunchtime first. Oh, thank goodness. I, I've been I've been sitting on this for a long time. I have a special treat for you for lunch. Oh, really? I own an island off the coast of Costa Rica. <laughs> there are buckets of ice cream, wobbling green jello, and steaks the size of a Ford Explorer. Okay? <laughs> Spared no expense. Oh, no. So let's hop into my helicopter, head on out to the island, and then we'll see you all for the Minority Report in Contemporary Culture. Oh, I'm famished. I'm as hungry as a starved velociraptor. Let's do this. (laughs) The Sci-Fi Channel presents amazing characters. These guys are strange. 
Amazing adventures. Why can't life be as good as a movie? Amazing creatures. And amazing new worlds. Television was never like this. The Sci-Fi Channel presents Amazing Stories. Tonight at 10 p.m., 7 p.m. Pacific. Chili and sea bass? Is that even a real fish? I don't even know. That was good, though. That was delicious. That was a fantastic <laughs> uh, lunch. Oh, man. Spared no expense in the cafeteria. I appreciate the school funding. I'm glad you enjoyed it because the only person on my side is the blood-sucking lawyer. So. <laughs> I need to be transparent. The amount of restraint I'm showing in this episode, I could very happily, very happily do an entire another podcast series just about talking about Jurassic Park as an IP. Oh, of course. My, my knowledge and passion for it is massive. But I'm trying to rein it in because this is about That's Spielberg, That's not true. about Jurassic Park. I appreciate your restraint. I know how hard it is for you. <laughs> this is it very is difficult. Not- it must be recognized. So thank but you so much. I appreciate the shout out. I, I felt like that gave me some permission to have some joy in Jurassic Park for a minute. That was good. Oh, great. Yes. Again, don't be assassins of joy, everybody. It's that simple. <laughs> so we are here in contemporary culture. We're talking about what comes next after our favorite aspects of the 80s. We've learned about Spielberg's style, where he came from. Well, first off, we had like a fun question for the class of 80s high, which was, you know what? If Spielberg made a movie about your life... What would it be called and why? This is so great. We're going to kick off with Mikey B. We might know Mikey. Uh, he's been on this podcast a few times, including the, the, last one, the, Halloween <laughs> the very previous episode. And Mikey said his movie would be called Indianapolis Smith and the Paranormal Artifacts. I like that. It's like a cheap <laughs> ripoff of Indiana Jones. Maybe a little dash of poltergeist in there. Who knows? You know, a, little, a little something like that. So that's good. Classmate Nick chimes in and he says their movie would be called Indiana Jones and the Backyard of Unexpected Horrors uh, because (laughs) we just bought a house from a family that had spent the past 20 years disrespecting it with buried potted plants, planted nylon flowers, an inordinate amount of mint, rebar shoved two feet in the ground. What? All in all, it feels like... Uh, I'm going to censor this. It feels like crappy amateur archaeology. Wow. That's, that's what really were funny. They up to? <laughs> the backyard of unexpected horrors. Oh, my goodness. Why the rebar? I get the flowers. Maybe you're lazy. Maybe you don't have a green thumb. You're like, I'll put fake flowers out. Who's just shoving rebar in the ground? I'm a little nervous. What if they only remove the headstones? They, they only remove the headstones. headstones. Be careful, Nick. Be careful. Uh, look, Nick, 811, call before you dig. Uh, yeah, just- it might. you might be sitting <laughs> on a cemetery right now. Oh, I hope not. Oh, goodness. Okay, so let's talk about Classmate Jim. Classmate Jim said it would be called Back to the Present because it seems like I try to be forward-thinking, but something always brings me back to the present. Can't keep his headspace there. He's trying to look to the it's future. Perfect. But you know what? The present is always here for you. So mm. <laughs> it's true. Very existential. Thank you, classmate Jim. <laughs> Thank you, classmate Jim. So classmate Justin says the movie would be called The Loonies for self-evident <laughs> reasons. Uh, the Loonies. It's so good. <laughs> so, I mean, Justin wrote for self-evident reasons, and I don't feel I know what the 
I don't know what the evident reasons are. I'm not sure. Are they, as a Canadian banker, are they involved in loons? <laughs> are they just a little goofballs? I don't, I don't know what it is. You know, that's a good point. I took it as just a little bit crazy and, you know, sure. lovable and crazy. But you're right. Maybe it is about Canadian currency. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a banking drama. It's really great. It's one of Spielberg's banking dramas. It's so good. Well, we also heard from classmate Allison Dixon, mistress of Ding Dong Darkness, and she said the movie would be called The Impossible Escape Velocity of Ohio. Oof. That's a scathing indictment of Ohio. But hey, we're all Ohioans here, including Steve, so we get it. Uh, We're not there anymore either. So the the movie would be about a girl who got out of Ohio for 10 years, but was forced to come back and is now setting about building a rocket in her backyard to get out again and hopefully stay out, even if that means dying in the vacuum of space. Allison, you bring up a lot we got to talk about. I mean, first of all, I always loved this fact that like there were more astronauts from Ohio than any given state, Mm -hmm. which is always the joke of like, what is it about Ohio that keeps trying to drive people off the planet? Which I thought was kind of Allison gets it. I I get it too. But she also sounds like she's starting to write, like, if Spielberg was going to direct a new Hallmark holiday special, mm. like, it's like, the girl left her small town and she went out to the big city, but now <laughs> she's coming back. And, like, the old the old fling from high school once, once helped to build a rocket in the, in the backyard or something. I mean, Ohio is called the heart of it all, right? It's even shaped like a heart. So you know, <gasps> That's the name can, of the movie right there, the heart of it all. The shape of Ohio would have to be in the movie title. Uh-huh. <laughs> Coming to Hallmark Channel this holiday oh, season. No. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, thank you, classmates, for your fun entries. Love it, love it, love it. The Hallmark movie about Allison building a rocket ship but coming back to build it. It's Countdown to Christmas. That's that's what it is. It's, it's countdown to Christmas, and the O in countdown is like it's the heart of Ohio. It's countdown to Christmas. Mm. We've got it. Okay, I feel better now. I can move on. I love <sighs> it. Okay, let's kick off the '90s. What happens with Mr. Spielberg? And hey, romance is in the air. Remember Kate Capshaw that he meets on Temple of Doom all those years ago? Guess what? They get married in 1991. Woo! And she actually converts to Judaism. Remember how we talked about how he had kind of been estranged, not only from his father, but from his faith because of just his experience growing up. Well, this is one of the first experiences where he kind of reconnects with Judaism because Kate wants to convert. And she's really the one who brings him back into the faith by studying Judaism. And he, he finds his religious roots. So he really credits her and they're getting together for that, which is super cool. That's very cool. cool. That's nice. They go on to have five children. So this guy has seven kids. He has a huge family, which is great. So the other kids are Sasha, Theo, Sawyer, Destry, and Michaela. Big family, big home. Sounds like a big heart to create all sorts of fun experiences. Hopefully he's like his mother, Leah, where he's just like creating all these like Amazing scenarios for his uh, kids to enjoy. Well, it's interesting. Like, you know, if, if 91 is this year of, of you know, love and marriage and, you know, the start of having this really big household, it's also a, a summer where another really positive, charming, wonderful Spielberg movie comes out. Yeah. Hook. Hook, which is an awesome movie. It's starring a middle-aged Peter Pan, played by none other than the late, great 
Robin Williams in his oh return God. to Neverland. And this was like a time where he was feeling a little artistically stalled. And so this movie was kind of that shot in the arm to get him back in the game. And back in the game, he gets... Oh my God, does he come back in the game hard? Because 1993 is not just a double header. It is probably the biggest year of his career. I think that's fair. Well, besides Jaws. I mean, Jaws is a pretty big deal. It is, but these are two major groundbreaking movies in the same year. We get a little movie we've already talked about, Jurassic Park, based on the 1990 novel by Mr. Michael Crichton. This is not only an amazing movie in its own right from the storytelling, but it's also a huge step forward in the digital revolution. Because when they set out to make this movie, Stephen's like, I want all of these wide shots with 20, 30-foot dinosaurs running and moving and looking. And Kathleen Kennedy is like, we can't do that. Stephen, what are you even talking about right now? Like, you can't make practical effects that do that. And then this guy, Dennis Murren, comes to Kathleen kind of separately, and he's working on this little effect on his computer, and he wants to show it to her. And they do this screen test of just a dinosaur. It's like a skeleton of a dinosaur running. Yeah. Everyone freaking lost it. (laughs) Wait a minute. We can actually do this digitally. So what a groundbreaking moment in movie making history. The innovation that came from this movie. And again, for being one of the groundbreaking movies to do this, it looks amazing to this day. So impressive. There's a million memories, obviously, from Jurassic Park. But the one I'll just share because it's from 1993... I remember going to ask my parents if I could see Jurassic Park. Mm. And my dad had the Sunday paper out and it had a review of Jurassic Park. And I remember him saying, Ben, I don't know. It sounds a little violent. It talks Mm. here about there's this scene where the leg of a goat falls on the top of a car. I don't know if you're ready for this. And of course, I'm like, Dad, come on, please. Of course, I'm so ready. (laughs) Dad, please. It's fine. I can handle it. I saw Jurassic Park in the theater six times that year. Oh my gosh, yeah. Uh, it, was, it was awesome. But I do, I do remember that little talk, the, the pitch to try and go see it. I love it. And if you want to hear a little bit about Ben's dinosaur obsession, you can listen to our season one episode of Dino Riders, oh, where yeah. we have a great discussion of that. So Dino Riders was awesome. Sadly, we can't get to Jurassic Park in this podcast, but that's, the I think, the closest you can get to it yeah. and access his, uh, his joy. So yeah, leading up to this movie coming out, you had that fascination already. So totally. uh, clearly, the goat leg did not stop you because, yeah, six times... <laughs> That's amazing. Like, that was an era where you would keep paying to go to the movie theater. It's so expensive now. I don't think anyone would go twice. No. Oh, my God. No. But it was like five or six bucks back then. It was not a big deal. So, you know, this really opens up a new era of storytelling. Stevens, like, Jurassic Park at its core is a cautionary tale. And I love this quote. We stand on the shoulders of giants to create the next great thing, and yet we take no responsibility for our own creations. It's a great time-worn science fiction story. You mess with atomic energy, you get Godzilla. And what I think is so cool is like Godzilla is one of those early movies he saw in the theater that kind of informed it. And you just have to wonder, was this part of that inspiration for him to be like, I can kind of make my own Godzilla movie with dinosaurs and still do this cautionary tale of my new favorite quote, which I can't say on this podcast, F around and find out is really what it comes (laughs) down to. Well, and I love Jurassic Park as the continuation of this major sci-fi theme in the 80s 
of like cautionary tales of technology. Like don't let tech run too far away. I mean, that's where you get Terminator. That's where you get the risks of time travel from the DeLorean. I mean, yeah. Crichton, the, the author Michael Crichton was really big on cautionary tales of of technology. Prey is about swarms of nanobots. You've got all sorts of things like that. And Jurassic Park is nice because it's a very 90s movie. But again, that theme of like, be careful of how it, smart technology gets was such a hallmark of the 80s. Absolutely. And we're going to see that theme come back again and again through his later works. Despite being a massive movie, Jurassic Park is completed on time and became, once again, the highest grossing film at that time. Jaws broke a boundary. Jurassic Park's breaking a boundary. This movie won three Academy Awards. Of course it did. Obviously. Earned. Well earned. Well, like I said, the hits don't stop because very different tonally, but still just a beautiful masterpiece, a a heart-wrenching masterpiece, Schindler's List comes out Mm -hmm. in the same year. And this is a movie that centers on Oscar Schindler, a businessman who helped save 1,100 Jews from the Holocaust. So again, tonally very different. And this is a book that he had read and wanted to make into a movie, but he said he wasn't ready for it. And it took about a decade for him to get to the place where he felt like he could access the story and really tell it. They did a lot of shooting on location in Poland at Auschwitz. I don't know how he got through this. It was a very hard movie for him to make. He said if it wasn't for my wife and kids there to support me, that he didn't think he could actually make this film. He's like, we were on hollowed ground and we had to approach the material and the location with a great deal of reverence and that this movie had to be quiet. And the movie is really shot all pretty much in handheld cameras, which he had never really done before. He'd done handheld, but not an entire movie. But he said... For this, he needed it because you had to feel like you were in the moment of confusion and terror of what is going on. The camera can kind of move around as these horrible scenes are unfolding and this confusion as they're liquefying the ghettos. And Liam Neeson, uh, who played Oscar Schindler, he said Spielberg was like an abstract painter. He had this canvas and a palette with extraordinary colors. And yet this movie is done in black and white. And so this one, it's really less about color and more about light and shadow. He said, it was important that bad guys, that the Nazis were not just cast in shadow. Yeah. The lighting should not enhance the evilness. And he said he also didn't want them to be caricatures in and of themselves. He's like, it's not about bad guy. It's about man doing job and letting the audience decide. And I thought that was really powerful because I think that was true for a lot of people who perpetuated a lot of atrocities at that time is was they were doing their job. They weren't necessarily these evil people. There were those at the top, but it is mostly that. And so to be able to, I think, have the perspective to show that was just a brilliant stroke. And it also the way that they light Oscar Schindler, he starts in shadows. And as he comes into his own and makes this important decision, he becomes more front lit. Again, as he learns who he is, kind of goes back to that Lawrence of Arabia, who am I at the core of all of this? That's an astute observation. I think, you know, there's another thing he does with light and color in Schindler's List where, and we talked about this as one of his isms, you know, Schindler's List is black and white, but there's this um, young girl who's in like a red jacket who's like running down a street at some point and you kind of follow her and the red really pops out. And it really reminded me, I had to go look it up because I don't want to sound like pretentious, as you said, this is bad. You know, I I didn't know this (laughs) off the cuff. But, you know, there's that like classic like French movie about a red balloon, like a kid chasing a red balloon and the red Mm -hmm. is the color. 
uh, turns out to be called the Red Balloon from the from the nineteen fifty six. But yeah, it's just like when I saw that scene, I was like, that reminds me of the Red Balloon. His his play of color and where to draw the eye. When you think in black and white, there can't be a lot of work with that. But oh my god, does he do it a lot? It's great. Yeah, and apparently, like seeing that girl walking around happen to the actual Oscar Schindler. Yeah. He said that he couldn't take his eyes off this girl wandering down the street amidst the chaos and carnage as the ghetto was being liquefied. And Stephen was like, you know, the reason he put the girl in the red coat, he's like, she wasn't there to create a turning point for Oscar. But he said it's the representation of the obvious thing that was happening in the world that the world was turning a blind eye to, which was the Holocaust and what he called the industrialized wholesale process of murder. You know, something in plain sight that was being overlooked very powerful, very heart-wrenching. Something I want to add to Schindler's List is not only did he get lots of Academy notoriety and, and awards, but a lot of groups involved with Holocaust history and Jewish family groups were awarded him and gave him a lot of recognition. Schindler's List did very well, and he used the profits from that movie to set up the survivors of the Shoah Visual History Foundation, which, which helped families who had survivors from the Holocaust come out of it. Yeah, it's a nonprofit organization. So all of his earnings from the movie go to show a foundation. And awesome. so they make audiovisual interviews of survivors and witnesses of the Holocaust and have also documented other genocides to really be a, a voice for education and action. And so to to create that legacy in the end of the movie are actual Holocaust survivors going yeah. to Oscar Schindler's going to the actual gravesite and Again, documenting some of their voices, that's in the movie. And just, it's so important in history that we don't forget. And this is just one way in which we can hopefully document and learn and never repeat. It's a lesson I think it's very prescient for today. So, absolutely. Mm, wow. Yeah, definitely earns a rewatch. Again, this is an emotionally difficult movie for Stephen to make. And he said this is kind of a way for him to reconcile all the ways that he had hidden from the Jewish parts of his life and, and who he was. And it really made him proud to be, to be Jewish. And I thought that was, yeah, that's was awesome. really cool. You know, I think it started with his wife and kind of bringing him back into the religion and, and this movie really, I think, kind of helping solidify that. And this movie, not surprisingly, won seven Academy Awards. Not surprising at all. These two movies alone, 10 Academy Awards. Amazing. And so this one gets Best Picture, Best Director, he also wins seven BAFTAs and three Golden Globes. Well learned. But Stephen, not a lazy bum, not sitting around <laughs> playing Assassin's Creed for 20 hours a day. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Listen, as a person who does that, I am not critiquing it. But 1994 DreamWorks Pictures is created, an independent movie studio he creates with Jeffrey Katzenberg and David Geffen. Spielberg does this because he's like, I want more creative control and distribution options. And the way to do that, start your own studio. And DreamWorks would go on to produce so many movies, we can't list them all. But here's just a few. Well, first off, a lot of uh, Stephen's upcoming movies will be produced by DreamWorks, but also Gladiator, Castaway, Shrek, Seabiscuit, Meet the Parents, Memoirs of a Geisha. And that's just scratching the surface. But these are like, well-loved, huge, well-appreciated movies all coming out of DreamWorks. Super amazing. The next year, I have to take a pause for this, Ben. Okay. All right. All right. The Dig. Oh, thank you. After his shelf is literally cluttered with trophies, 
He's got to make another shelf. He's like, what's the next thing I want to do? I'm going to write a video game. This is so cool. We've talked about this before, I think, when we talked about Maniac Mansion. Yeah. The Dig comes out. It's a science fiction point-and-click adventure game by LucasArts, and it's run on the scum game engine. Right, exactly. Which was pioneered by the creators of Maniac Mansion. Go listen to that episode from season two. Ben, talk about The Dig. I mean, just basically what we've just uncovered here in in season three of 80s High, I think what's relevant from The Dig for these conversations, A, it was originally an idea for Steven Spielberg's Amazing Stories series, just like Batteries Not Included was. Yes. So it, it became something so much bigger than the original intention of it. And I just love the other part is like, this is another moment in the George Lucas-Steven Spielberg relationship where they come back and make something beautiful together. And it's this idea again of, you know, Lucas was kind of really hard on himself during Star Wars and they would pick each other up. And like you said, there was this sort of Hollywood brat pack. <laughs> like they challenge each other's directors to achieve more. And I just love that this is like a, a George Lucas Spielberg jam because both of their hallmarks of, of storytelling and generally regular people thrown into extraordinary circumstances, how they tell sci-fi stories. It's just... I, I think for me, The Dig was a video game, was the first video game that showed me a, a video game could have a, a really compelling story. Yeah. Like, it's around the same kind of thing, like, Chrono Trigger was around that time, too. But, like, up until then, games were just, like, run to the right. And this was really deep story. It was like a movie that you got to play. Exactly. Which, to your point, you didn't have a lot in the mid-90s. That just wasn't as much of a thing. And so... Yeah, not only does Spielberg have a writing credit for this, so does science fiction author Orson Scott Card. That's awesome. So this is steeped in a lot of genius. It's actually findable. You can go find it, or of course you can watch playthroughs of it on uh, YouTube if you want. But uh, yeah, The Dig. All right, 97. Two more movies. Not as big as his 93 double feature, but we do get The Lost World, Jurassic Park 2, Electric Boogaloo. Again, loosely based off of Crichton's novel, The Lost World. It sees our some of our crew head to an island, a second island. I'll defend to my death that I still really like The Lost World. And I, I think it's the second best of all the Jurassic Park series. Crichton didn't even want to write a sequel, but because the first one did so well, he got enough pressure that he wrote it. So a lot of people involved in it weren't really anticipating to be involved in it. But it's a great adventure. It, it keeps tones from the first movie, but with a very fresh story. There's another hallmark. I mean, one of the best sequences in cinema, in, in adventure cinema, is this incredible scene. I won't go play by play, but where basically a trailer is being pushed off a cliff by two T-Rexes. Mm. And it's just incredible with long shots from Spielberg and ordinary people in an absolutely insane circumstance trying to survive it. It's a perfect action sequence. I'm a little disappointed you didn't say the girl in the uneven bars, but that's fine. So <laughs> the, the jumping the shark of the Jurassic Park series, gymnastics kicking a velociraptor in the head. It was definitely a low point in the series. I found this. This is what Roger Ebert wrote about this movie. It can be said that the creatures in this film transcend any visible signs of special effects and seem to walk the earth. But the same realism isn't brought to the human characters. Yeah. Who are bound by plot conventions and action formulas. I think that's pretty accurate. That's fair. I think that's accurate. Is I think maybe you had such great characters in the first movie and it just they didn't quite jump off the screen in the second movie. 
Roland Tembo is like my only character I really love in it, which is like the big game hunter who comes to like yeah. wrangle them all up. Um, I forget what actors who plays that, but he he crushes that role. But that's a very fair evaluation. So also this year, Amistad comes out. Amistad is the first movie released under DreamWorks. Based off true events that happened in 1893 aboard a slave ship, La Amistad, uh, stars Morgan Freeman, Anthony Hopkins, Jenon Hounsou, and Matthew McConaughey. And Spielberg uses 10 years of research to reenact these really difficult historical scenes. Again, he's yeah. it's kind of like yeah. with Color Purple and Schindler's List. He's really going into some darker times in history and yeah. trying not to really to shy away from it. But also, like you said, I wouldn't say he's pulling his punches, but they're not gritty, visceral types of movies. And, you know, Spielberg was hesitant to take on this project. He didn't want it to be compared to Schindler's List. Uh, but, you know, he's like, in the end, I think it's what I have to do. And, uh, you know, while this movie did, again, kind of cover these important historical events that America needs to reconcile with, it didn't really find an audience and Ooh, it underperformed yeah. at the box office and Spielberg later admitted, you know, I think it was too much of a history lesson that maybe there was less of a story. And so I, I just wonder if maybe that's why it didn't quite find its place with an audience. But yeah, so that's 1997. We then come into pretty big year, 1998 saving private Ryan. Back to his days of escape from nowhere, where he and his schoolyard <laughs> friends are running around the desert of Arizona, kicking up dirt. He wanted to make a tactile and personal war movie. And you spoke a bit to this when you talked yeah. about just those scenes and the gritty realism of them. Uh, and this is where I do think it gets a little grittier or um, less pulling his punches, I think, with, with this movie. What's really wild is Tom Hanks said, we had no idea what the Omaha Beach scene would be like we're just all in this boat and we're talking with each other and oh what's going on here well you're in a spielberg movie this 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 and he's like the ramp drops yeah and he's like spielberg played to our actual sense of confusion panic and fear he captured our own shock and surprise in the moment when that ramp went down so i think such a great sense of direction yeah. That, you know, I'm going to put my, I'm going to, obviously they had some loose ideas, I'm sure, but it's like, they didn't know the full extent, much like those soldiers didn't. And I thought, wow, that's, again, it's just another hallmark of someone who knows what they're doing and knows how to get the right performance out of their actors. That scene is just, it puts you in that moment. It's an incredible scene. You talked about sound. There's oh such God. an expressionistic experience of sound. You hear the bullets whizzing by. Uh, you hear the sound they make when they hit bodies. You see them streaming through the water when they're underwater. It is just amazing and awful. So my my father's the one who really got me into movies. My brother was the music guy. <laughs> Mom was creative self-expression and dad was movies. And we would go see a lot of movies together, just, just he and I. And we would always talk very excitingly in the car on the way home about what the movie we saw and what we liked and what we didn't like and you know what was so neat. And I'll never forget the 20 minutes of silence on the drive home after seeing mm. Saving Private Ryan together. Because it was just the most, it was the heaviest, most intense movie we had ever watched together. And like, neither of us could find the words to express what we were feeling on the way home afterwards. It was, it was a lot. Yeah. And uh, I should say, if you don't know, it is obviously World War II era. 
And it follows a group of U.S. soldiers led by Captain Miller uh, who are going to bring a paratrooper home. His three older brothers were killed uh, in the same 24 hours of the Normandy landing. So it's really, you know, they make that landing in Normandy and then it's this group kind of going out to, uh, to find this guy played by Matt Damon. Again, revealing some of those visceral truths of that war and a time in history. And he said he made it for his dad. It was a love letter to the veterans of the greatest generation. And this was really the experience where he reconciled with his dad. And Arnold, his father, said that it was very touching, you know, because he was very hurt by the estrangement from his son. And not only that, but also seeing these absent father figures in all of these movies and knowing it was about him was so painful. But that he made this movie in honor of him and fellow soldiers of the generation, I thought, was just, again, very touching and and, uh, amazing. And this movie earned his second Academy Award for Best Director. What a great film. The relationship with fathers continues to permeate the Spielberg work. Absolutely. Um, going into the 2000s to present day, I'm going to kind of categorize some movies, but stop me if there's ones you want to talk about specifically. Yeah, sure. So we see a collection of sci-fi movies. This includes AI, artificial intelligence, Minority Report, and War of the Worlds. Yeah, and I mean, all I'll say about those ones is War of the Worlds I loved his reimagining of War of the Worlds. War of the Worlds is a radio program I typically really love to listen to on Halloween every year as sort of a tradition. I think that's kind of Mm, fun. Um, But I loved his – it got panned pretty hard. It was a big spectacle blockbuster movie, got a lot of flack, and I think it's it's really fun and really captivating. And a couple of these movies really get more into some of that dystopian – themes, you know, particularly with Minority Report and this idea of being arrested for pre-crimes that you, you know, are planning to commit. And, you know, a a lot of this kind of comes out in sort of a a post 9-11 sensibility. Minority Report, for sure. Also Munich, which we'll talk about. But um, well, yeah, let's just talk about those. So there's uh, several historically based films. We've got Lincoln. We've got Munich. Catch Me If You Can is based off of an actual person. Yeah. And Bridge of Spies. Oh, yeah, right. Again, some pretty like groundbreaking. I've seen uh, two of these. I've seen Munich and Catch Me If You Can. Uh, Munich is another one of those just you know, really tense movies. And that's another – there's a scene, there's a bomb scene uh, where they're going to bomb this apartment because it's basically seeking retribution on all these terrorists. And there's this just really tense scene where they're going to set off this bomb and the way that he plays with, again, geography. Yeah. You're with with a guy in a phone booth. You're up in the apartment. You're with a guy on the street. You're with the two guys in the car and you're just moving seamlessly from these scenes. And the, the tension is just at a fever pitch. It's so good. Have you seen any of these? I have seen all of them. I think what you listed I feel like I should see Lincoln and I haven't. I feel like I need to see that and I haven't seen it. Mostly what I find fascinating about Lincoln is Daniel Day-Lewis's portrayal of Lincoln because it's yeah. unlike any that anyone has ever done before and it got really- Hold on, hold on. You, are you telling me it's not like Abraham Lincoln from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? What? It's, it's true, it's true. He no, doesn't he say like, party on dudes at the end of the speech? <laughs> party on Party on dudes! Um, no, but you're absolutely right. But I'm glad you said that party on dudes because he does a really high pitched voice. And this was after a lot of research that like Lincoln actually had it sounded like an uncharacteristically higher voice, not this deep baritone leading a nation, but more of a squeakier, higher kind of thing. And it's just interesting. 
he almost has this high register. Like, I can't really do justice to it. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis did such a great job at it. I've seen some, well, I mean, there were some clips of it uh, in the documentary. Yeah. I thought it was a great choice that it's like, you know what? You know, there's a lot of historical research to suggest this is how he talks. So let's right. put that into the movie. Let's sort of recreate the narrative of he's not full score. He's not Sean Connery. Full <laughs> no, score in seven years Sean ago. Connery. It's worth With this kind of deep baritone voice, you know. I think it was after uh, after Lincoln that Daniel Day-Lewis was like, I'm going to retire from acting for a little while. I mean, it's like every major performer of any time. They're like, I'm going to retire. And then they're back in two years for something. Oh, yeah. But yeah. like he put so much into that performance. Yeah, I think that was the one he announced a retirement after. Yeah, I think he's a method actor. and you know, Exactly. Those, yeah, yeah. Him and, him and Vigo. Those guys really kind of, they, they press the limits. So, And then there's some lighthearted adventures. You mentioned The Terminal. Uh, yeah. You've seen a lot of Tom Hanks. We talked about Richard Dreyfuss so being a lot Tom of these, Hanks. his movies, particularly his earlier ones. A lot of Tom Hanks in these later ones, which I'm certainly not against. Love me some Tom. But uh, also we have Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Oh, you mentioned it. You said it. Oh, you said it. If you say it three times, uh, Beetlejuice shows up and you mirror to haunt your Beetlejuice, house. Beetlejuice, Don't Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Yeah. I, I will say I did not watch this when it came out. I watched it very recently in the last couple of years. I didn't hate it as much as everyone else did, but I also had the benefit of knowing the hatred was out there and why. So when I watched it, I was all ready for it. That probably helped. It's not like a great movie, but I was like, it had some fun ideas in it. It's okay. There's some fun ideas. The CG in it is pretty bad. They went hard on CG, which is different from the earlier movies. So that doesn't hold up really well. You know, I don't know exactly, but I feel like the other movies, all three of those relied on supernatural, you know, because mm. Nazis were really into supernatural stuff in the re- in, in real life. Right. But this took a bridge to Aliens, which was like a different yeah. choice yeah. into what the end magic was. No, for sure. I think that, yeah, that's really what got a lot of people. Uh, Ready Player One, you mentioned also another lighthearted, fun adventure and BFG. There are, of course, lots of other movies in this era. If there's some you want to pick up, Ben, let's talk about those. Yeah, I mean, I would only just say like Ready Player One, I think, is like one of the biggest pillars of the revitalization of 80s pop culture around Mm. in the last decade. Yeah, we make lots of references to Stranger Things. But Ready Player One, the novel, which is, uh, again, I would like in many circumstances, far superior to the film. The film is fun, but really misses a lot of it is just every page is like 90 references to like late 70s and 80s movies, TV, video games. And so it is really a pillar. So if you love this kind of stuff, you're listening to this and you have yet to read Ready Player One, go do yourself a favor. Awesome. Lo and behold, he's not done because next month. Actually, probably this month when you're listening to this recording, The Fablemans is set to release. It's an American coming-of-age drama directed by Mr. Spielberg, written and produced by Tony Kushner and Spielberg. It's a semi-autobiographical story loosely based on Stephen's early life. And the premise is, it's going to sound familiar, growing up in the post-World War II era of Arizona. From age 7 to 18, a young man named Sammy Fableman discovers a shattering family secret and explores how the power of films can help him see the truth. Oh, hmm. interesting. That sounds, sounds a, a bit little familiar. familiar. Yeah, exactly. So this is coming out limited release November 11th and a wide theatrical release on November 23rd. So just before the Thanksgiving holiday, if you want to learn more about Steven Spielberg through a... Uh, 
a loose autobiographical lens. I don't know, maybe do yourself a favor. It looks like actually they recreate the scene of um, Escape to Nowhere where the kids are in the the uniforms and they're out, you know, making the movie and whatnot. So oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It looks pretty cool. So that's coming up soon. And he is slated to produce Indiana Jones 5. Yeah, this right. movie has been in pre-production, production, oh whatever, forever. Initially, he was going to direct. He has since stepped back from that and is set to produce. Maybe 2023 is when this movie comes out. Yeah. Uh, that's sort of the the murmurings. And we'll learn more about what the fifth installment will entail. Yeah, I'm excited to see it. I've seen some set photos. I'm feeling good about it. I'm, I don't know. Well, yeah, I got to wait and see. But man, Harrison Ford's getting up there. And anytime you see Harrison Ford get interviewed, he seems to just not like doing it anymore, which just makes me nervous. And I think because of how complicated of a human being he is, I don't think Shia LaBeouf's going to be in it, right? Yeah, I don't I don't think he's turning as, God, what was his name in the fourth one? Buff or something? Yeah. Shia LaBeouf played Buff or something? <laughs> they they kind of set him up to uh, not necessarily pass the torch. There's the great one where he puts the hat on at the end and Indiana yeah, right. picks it up and puts it back on his head. It's kind of funny. But yeah, I don't know if they'll recast that role or what, but I suppose we'll find out. Mutt, not buff, mutt. Mutt, mutt. So, Ben, we're coming toward the end of contemporary culture. What else do we need to talk about? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of fun facts from his life. I mean, there's a million, right? But I try to, there's a few that we haven't talked about yet that I think are just really interesting. One I want to ask you, have you ridden any rides at Universal Studios based on his movies? Gosh, I am trying to remember. I've done the Jurassic Park ride. Yes, I have. Yeah, okay, good. So I had this dream always to go to Universal Studios and get to ride all these movie rides of the movies that I loved from the 80s in this time. And oh, I, I also did the Back to the Future one. So perfect. Oh, oh, and Jaws. Sorry, and Jaws. Okay, I did so the you Jaws got ride. Most of them. You got most yes. of them. That's good. Wow. And I, I think it's a bummer because a bunch of these have now closed. If you have not gotten yeah. to live your 80s life uh, in person, I mean, so E.T. closed in 2003. Back to the Future mm. closed in 2007. Jaws closed in 2012. And if you're a purist, Jurassic Park got reskinned to Jurassic World in 2019. Mm. So not that not that red, black, and yellow, but now it's all the the blue and silver from Jurassic World. Yeah, gosh, I'm trying to remember if I did the ET one. That I can't remember. I mean, I got to ride Jaws, and I I rode Jurassic Park several times that day, but I, I, the other ones were gone by the time I got there. It was kind of a bummer. The Back to the Future one was a lot of fun. I remember really liking that. That was cool. Yeah. I'll, sh- I'll say he is uh, really outspoken. Uh, he's very politically and socially active. He donates to a lot of causes, a lot of big things. Um, you know, we don't really get that into that so much necessarily on our show, but I'll just say I'm generally really excited about the things he chooses to support. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. I think a controversial one a little bit. He was an Eagle Scout. And a lot of like scouts show up as kids in a lot of his films. Actually, you have a lot of love of scouting as kids. Oh, sure. He, yeah. he was an Eagle Scout. And he served on the advisory board for the Boy Scouts of America. Uh, but he left because the not only all the controversy of the adults with scouts and what was happening with some of the children, but also because the Boy Scouts were not really uh, open and welcoming of LGBTQ. And, you know, yep. if Spielberg is on your side, that's a great sign that, like, you're doing the right thing, I think. And if right. Spielberg <laughs> leaves your side, it's time to check what you're doing. That's not that's not a good sign. That should be your barometer for where you are in life. <laughs> is Spielberg pro you or not? That's right. Excitedly, you know, like, 
it's it's kind of fun to have movie props. You know, our, our buddy Mikey was showing us some of his cool. He uh, he got a replica of the uh, barbarian sword from Conan the Barbarian. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So uh, Spielberg has one of the original rosebud sleds from Citizen Kane. Oh wow! It's a prized film trophy of his. Wow, that's amazing. It's important to be seen and heard. You know, the more you hear about this stuff of your heroes, the more you can feel empowered to achieve things. So Spielberg was diagnosed with dyslexia at the age of 60. So look at all he has accomplished. Did not hold him back at all. Well, and that may also explain why he wasn't great at school because... Yeah, right, exactly. You know, that's something that I don't think was well understood, gosh, even in the 80s, let alone back in the 50s and 60s when, you know, he's growing up. So... You just have to wonder if that was like a challenge for him for academic learning. It had to be. It had to be. Yeah. But bringing it all back to the reason I brought up the Batmobile and Ecto-1 Lego sets in Homeroom, Steven Spielberg was the first living person to have a playable Lego minifigure modeled after him. Oh, okay. (laughs) There was sort of like in the early 2000s, there was this this run of uh, Lego Studios products of of cinema, and he got to be (laughs) the the first real person with a Lego guy. So that was kind wow, of cool. how about that? That's the rest of my trivia, though. That's all I had laying on the floor. That's the stuff you can bring up at dinner parties or you might have at pub trivia that might save you the game here. When you become a Lego, that's how you know you've made it. Screw all the statues <laughs> right. on your mantle. Who right. gives a that's crap? Are you a Lego? Just this little tiny minifig. That's all yeah, you need. That's all you need. That's all you need. I love it. So we wanted to wrap up uh, the class talking about just some fun memories of Steven Spielberg and favorite movies. And so we put the question to the class of 80s high. This is what they had to say. We'll kick it off at the top again with classmate Mikey. He said, I know it's 70s, but I think Close Encounters of the Third Kind is his masterpiece. It has all the themes he loves to explore. Family, father, sci-fi, horror, and Richard Dreyfus gives us one of my favorite screen performances of all time. Perfect. Thanks, Mikey. You and Nick are two peas in a pod. He said, I honestly love Catch Me If You Can. What a fun mm. movie. And one of the very few based on a true story movies that I even really enjoy. Awesome. Classmate Aaron has to say, what a gift to the world he is. Reading over the list of movies he was involved in, it is astounding to see what an influence he has had in the movie scene. It's hard to pick just one favorite Spielberg movie because they are all so good, but the scene in E.T. when the kids fly on their bikes in front of the moon is probably my favorite scene from one of his movies. Side note, I didn't know he was involved in The Land Before Time. He loses some points for killing the mother dinosaur in that one. <laughs> just like you said, Littlefoot's mom. That's so heartbreaking. Oh, my oh, God. Aaron, I hope you're doing all right. Man. Oh, man. So Jim says, I was looking through this list, and there's so many awesome memories tied to his films. I loved watching Goonies all the time when I was a kid. I was mm. also very fascinated with the Back to the Future franchise and felt each one of those films was unique in their own way. I do want to, just because we're in the geographic reason, I do want to throw out, I have been to the Goonies house in Astoria, Oregon. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah, a lot of the film was shot around there, you know, the big coastal sweeps when uh, One-Eyed Willie's ship sails out, all that kind of stuff like that. But just please, you know, if you hear this podcast, you love going to film locations, the people who live there don't want you there. Oh, yeah, they do not. Yeah, you get up that street, and now there are, like, signs that say, like, please sleep away. Because people were breaking stuff off fences to have, like, yeah. part of the movie. 
Um, so, you know, please look at it from a distance if you're really going to make that pilgrimage. We did respectfully visit the house from Harry and the Hendersons that here in so Seattle awesome. and, uh, and took great. our photo, but we didn't trample through the yard and break stuff and steal things. We, we just we very respectfully we very stayed respectful. on the street and sidewalk. But uh, that was cool to see, though. Is that on our Instagram? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Another good reason to scroll back through the Insta. Uh, it's a while back, but yeah, we did that. Classmate Justin says, when I was eight or nine, a friend and I started a Goonies club. It lasted one afternoon. <laughs> no. That's so good. I'm not even sure we realized that we were aligning ourselves with the rejects, but something about the regular kids have great adventure tale resonated with us. It's an old archetypal story, but the Goonies nailed it in such a weird way that it's an incredible part of my childhood. Absolutely. I think that's why it really edged out gremlins because of that yeah. childhood nostalgia. What, you don't have nostalgia for growing tiny slimy monsters in your attic? I mean, I had little furry pets, but they did not turn into... <laughs> Listen, let's not condone them as monsters. They just wanted to have fun. That's the right, gremlins they were to have a great time. just wanted to have joy. <laughs> we're trying not to be assassins of joy. But yeah, they just they don't do it in the best way. That was the best takeaway of gremlins. They just love what they do. Love your job. Love what you do. Absolutely. Can you take us home with our last entry? Yeah, Allison brings us home and she says, my parents would let me watch E.T. because they knew it would destroy me. Finally mm. got to watch it at a friend's house. And yep, they were right. I wonder what she means. Like if it was destroy as in like it's scary or if like it is heartbreaking because it it's a touching movie. I'm sorry, that scene where like the pale E.T. is in that like creek bed really is sad. a nightmare. It's really sad. It is awful. And he's like withering and oh, yeah, it's We're in the hospital and, and the kid's just screaming and crying oh. about it. It's really oh hard. my God. It's harsh. It's hard. Well, uh, just a few other fun memories. Spielberg says John Williams is my oldest collaboration. He rewrites my movies musically and puts them a rung higher than I could ever reach. It's been said that Steven speaks cinema as if it were his native language. And I'll, I'll wrap it up with Lawrence Kasdan, again, that screenwriter of so many great movies. He says, Steven is an American movie maker. He is drawn to all the themes inherent in American character and society. With people struggling for freedom in one way or another in his movies, liberty, freedom, rights of the individual, doing the right thing, these are at the core of his movies. I thought that was really good and kind of an encapsulation of the genius, the gifts given to us by Mr. Steven Spielberg. Beautiful. Oh, my goodness, Ben. What a far-reaching discussion. And we didn't even scratch the surface, I think. I know. We tried to move quickly. We did not go deep down. We had a close encounter with almost every major property. We did. <laughs> we sure did. Okay. I have a bag of sand in one hand. Oh, God. And I'm staring at this artifact perched on a pedestal, Chris, licking my it. lips. Chris, don't do it. Ben, Chris, we got to head to math class to see if I can keep this scale balanced. Oh, God. And we can weigh in on how Steven Spielberg's filmmaking career holds up today. I feel like we're going to get crushed by our own hubris, but let's go for it. <laughs> <laughs> how dare we? Well, Benjamin, we've come to math class. We've survived our harrowing experience with the giant ball of hubris. Uh, so let's commit some more hubris. Let's put <laughs> Steven Spielberg's career on trial. No, <laughs> let's <laughs> let's talk about how do we think it holds we? up today? His career, his 
oeuvre of films. You know, something that we haven't talked about yet is like, I think one of the things that makes Spielberg so easy to love is his history, his personal life is so squeaky clean. Mm. Like, I think, you know, a lot of times in math class, we talk about does it hold up? And oh, there's this thing. And oh, and then this thing happened. You know, can you love the art but hate the artist? Is that possible? Can you do that? And like, man, researching Spielberg for this, like, I could not find some major controversy or these or lawsuits about stuff. Like, and I think that helps to still really love his movies and like respect him and Mm. love him because like he kept it pretty clean in his life. And he's kind of an easy guy to love. Yeah. Well, that's me. I don't know what his seven kids say, but I, <laughs> I, I mean, you know, he's decorated in a million things we've talked about. Most commercially successful director in history. Life magazine named him the most influential person of his generation. Entertainment Weekly is the most powerful person in entertainment. Um, mm. You know, he's he is the top dog in a lot of ways. I love all these films so much. I love his style. I love kind of like you and I talked about when you got back to the nobody needs to murder joy that he is willing to be so vulnerable in the stories that he tells both shining the light on the parts of human history that no one really wants to talk about that much anymore but also yeah. in just the the complications of family relationships and of of children and what's that like to be a normal person thrust into extraordinary circumstances i love that style absolutely the thing i I want to leave my my math class contribution on is a quote I've transcribed from Spielberg from one of the documentaries, which I think, which I love because what he's talking about here is one of the reasons we started doing 80s high. And this mm. is sort of my, my sandwich for this episode of justifying 80s high, maybe yeah, for myself. you got some bookends. You got some bookends. Look at this. You know, am I justifying the purpose of 80s high for our listeners or for ourselves? I don't know, but I started with it and I'm going to end with it too. But here's here's what Spielberg had to say in an interview um, around the time that he was doing AI artificial intelligence. Okay. I come in contact with a lot of young people and I found that a lot of these people know all my movies really, even better than I do. And they all know of Marty's films. He's speaking of Martin Scorsese and Brian Mm -hmm. De Palma's films and George Lucas's films. And they're getting to know all of Quentin Tarantino's three films. And then he kind of like winks at the camera like Tarantino was a new guy then. Uh, But what's happening is that they don't know much beyond that. And when I say, what are your favorite films from the old days, from the black and white days, the 30s and the 40s? I don't get a lot of answers that give me comfort. And I'm finding that if people are just going to study the movie brats of the 1970s, what they're learning is a pretty weak carbon copy because all the movie brats learn from the masters of the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s. And I'm sure those learned from the silent movie masters. So we're all handing influences down and inspiring from generation to generation. And I'm kind of a little bit sad that a lot of the young people today kind of have a cutoff point for their own personal influences. And that's like, they don't know a lot of pictures in the pre-60s. And so that's his quote. And I just thought that was good because like we did 80s high because there's pop culture that people... One of the reasons we did 80s High is this pop culture that people love today, but if they knew the source material and what inspired those storytellers and those video game designers and those writers, they would probably be even more impressed with what came before and before that to keep pushing people farther back in history about where these these stories and creative works and entertainment began. And Spielberg felt the exact same way in, in cinema. And it was trying to push people back into the, the beginning of the century and rather just love the 70s and the 80s. Yeah, and I think that's why we built history class into this, because then we could even look a step back from that and say, okay, well, these things from the 80s that inspire stuff today, what were they inspired by? So I I feel like 
we do some uh, a little bit of service to you know Stephen's quote there by talking about how the '80s were influenced. Uh, whether you know we're talking about him as a director or a ten thousand year old board game, so <laughs> for instance. Now, listeners, we always try and play the show close to the chest. We don't really want to reveal how we feel about the topic until math class. And Chris, I feel like you've done a really good job. We don't really know how this is going to land. So reveal to us, how do you feel about Steven Spielberg and his works? Yeah. What I love about Steven the most, I think, is his character. And I I really learned a lot of this through watching that documentary. You know, I, I did not know a lot about Steven Spielberg, even though I've seen, you know, a fair number of his movies. And what I love was like he inspires And he knows how to get the best out of people in a very natural way. It's not Kubrick terrorizing his actors to get the performance. He's he's doing it in this really authentic, genuine way. And he surrounds himself with a big team of people he's loyal to. He's not only loyal to and collaborative with John Williams. There's so many people he's worked with throughout his entire career, spans of movies, decades. I just love that he's a collaborator. But also, he's not afraid to back down from his own vision. And that we saw that early on in his career. When he knew something artistically was the right thing to do because the movie was in his head, he did it. Yeah. He found a way to take his personal experience and make it universal and accessible. And he's proven that he can blend mass appeal with artistic, truthful filmmaking. He can move us in many ways. And it took him a career trajectory, I think, to hit all of those notes. Mm. And that's okay. We all grow. We all learn. I want more people like Steven who are aspirational, who are giving and genuine, who aren't ensnarled by ego and cockiness. Assertiveness isn't heartless and vulnerability isn't weakness. Yeah, right. And I think Steven not only learned and lived these values, but he was able to share them with the world in a way that I'll say no other director or creator has, Yeah, maybe even can. And the fact that he can find his way to the heart of a story really quickly and also tell it in a way through his characters and direction, I think is really masterful. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, I think he's found a way into our hearts, which is a feat I will forever be thankful for. Do you think Spielberg was trying to put his own line through E.T. when he was like, be good? Like, I I feel like that is a, a through line in a lot of his movies. And I think he was being called to, to dinner one time and he told his dad, I'm right here. <laughs> so good. I, I want to rewatch E.T. I haven't done that in a while. I should do that. I wanted to revisit that. I didn't get a chance to, but uh, it, it's got to come up soon because, yeah, what a treasure of a movie. So um, speaking of treasures, we need to know what nugget, what gem you have on earth. We have a rich vein of gold from oh, this God, entire yes. season of 80s high so far. And we know you're going to keep that ball rolling, that giant ball chasing us down the season. What can we expect from the next episode of 80s high? What are we getting into, Ben? I love it. I absolutely love it. Before I get into it, though, I failed to mention in Homeroom an incredible, speaking of reveals, from Christopher. We had Christopher over to our house last weekend. And we got to the point after dinner (laughs) to play some board games. And Chris just casually sets a stack on the table. And there at the bottom of the stack is Basilinda. 
Now, if you're new to 80s High, you may forget that very early on in season one, we did Battleship, the board game Battleship from the 80s. And its oldest hearkening was this old... Chris, when when was Basilinda from? Uh, late 80s. Uh, I'm sorry, the late 80s. The late 1880s, to late be specific. Late 1880s, which is sort of this this uh, French tabletop game, very similar of a sudden reveal of where your, your war forces are, and then you see who's left standing. And I... Naively, which I think was part of the trap Chris had tried to lay, just like a good boulder about to fall, thought it, like it was in print again. No, Christopher had had worked with teams across the country to custom make a beautiful professional-looking game box for Basilinda. Custom 3D printed pieces inside the box, instruction manual, quotes from Sun Tzu and Napoleon about war. And not only did he do an amazing job getting this custom game built, but we played it, and it was shockingly incredibly fun. Very tense. It was a good time. It's a great game. So that was just such a delightful, like, surprise reveal. Basil, I can't believe you made a custom Basilinda. So good. So good. And I told Ben and Mrs. Ben, I told them, I said, you know, this has been a long time coming. Ever since we did that episode and we were joking about making the game, in the back of my head, I was like, I need to actually make Basilinda. It's two years later, but I actually finally got around to doing it. And uh, I was so excited for that reveal. And I was glad it worked out. It was a great time. And it was a fun game. All that money I spent was not wasted. So No, it was so I actually really want to play it again. Maybe we can put some photos on the uh, oh, 80s high yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, Insta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, I'll, we'll, we'll put some photos like, up there. I'll take a couple. We'll show you what the game looked like. It's so good. I mean, it is 80s high. It's just 1880s, so it's perfect. The 1880s high. The, the dream of the... What is that from Portlandia? The dream of the 80s alive? Anyway, for the next episode of 80s high, you know, there's always oh. a lot that goes into my topic selections. I, I put a lot into it. You do. You're very methodical, you're very intentional, and I appreciate that. So tell us the genesis of this selection. There's three influences. One was for my last topic, Halloween. I swung for the fences on Broad. So I said, you know what? Next time, I need to get laser focused. Let's go back to the roots of 80s high, a very specific topic from the 80s. Okay. And then I looked at what we've done so far this season. And as you know, I am a Libra I seek out balance in all life. And I looked at what topic is missing here? What category haven't we done yet in season three? And then I saw a picture, really, and this is this is the third part. This is really what kicks it off and makes it come home. Okay. I saw a photograph related to a story of two young children, ordinary folks, like in a Spielberg film. One dressed as the arcade game Asteroids and the other dressed as Papa Smurf. <laughs> so on the next episode of 80s High, we are going to flee the forest from Gargamel, mushroom houses whizzing by us, and blue faces as we run to the edge of the cartoon cliff, dive off of it into the blue water, deep down to a beautiful coral reef where we meet the friendly residents of that reef, the Snorks. The snorks. Come along with the snorks. Swim along with the snorks. The the ripoff of the Smurfs, the underwater version, <laughs> the snorks cartoon show of the next episode of 80s. I'm excited. Have you seen this? Do you, do you remember this show? 
Not really. I have just only the vaguest memories of it. So this is really going to be a new exploration for me. Yeah, it never made it onto Spielberg's Amazing Stories. He never did a film on it. So I, I don't know how well this is going to hold up like Spielberg, but I'm excited to see and, and revisit the Snorks and find out what it was really all about. There's only one way we can learn, and that's on the next episode, Ben. Of 80s High! Woo! <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for listening to 80s High Podcast by Ben and Chris. Our theme song is by Greg Reed at gregreedmusic.com with vocals by Chad Bumford. Show artwork is by Alex Goddard at alexgoddarddesign.com. If you like the show, please support us by passing a note to a friend in your next class. Also, you can rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts to help spread the rumor. Stay radical! Stay radical!